Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test and Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, that's the plug for the book. I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Tug, welcome back to 10 Century. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you, dude. It's like it was only a couple of days ago, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny how time's like that. Um, yeah. So the last time we talked, we spent most of our time talking about your exchange with the Marine Corps flying the F-18D, which was the two-seat night attack. Um, well, it's a multi-role, as you explained, and you did a lot of air-to-air, but it was a night attack specialist. That was the, the, the primary raison d'etre for that particular unit. Um, and you did mention a few times um, the back end of your tour where you flew with a reserve unit, but we never really dug into that. So I thought the plan today... I'm cheating, really. We already agreed this before I hit record. The, the plan today would be to talk about your time on the reserve unit. So, how did that come about? Then, how did you end up in that? That and, so, and can uh, you give us can you give us a time frame as well? Because we never talked dates last sure. time, so we don't even really know when this happened. Yeah, I, I love the spontaneity of this thing. Yeah, we do, we don't plan any of this, do we? Yeah. So I um I arrived in the states in '95 and left in '98. So I got uh, three years uh, across there, mid to late. Uh, uh, 90. So the, the Hornet had been around a, a little while by then, but when I was flying the um, the F-18Ds, these were like the newest jets on the on the block. They were they, they were a year old, if um, if that. As uh, so, so I was I was really given a, a gift with those um, with those aeroplanes. Now, as I got to the what turned out to be the end of my time on uh, 121 Squadron, they deployed to Iwakuni. And at the time, the status of forces agreement, I think it was called, prevented um, exchange people from uh, deploying. Uh, we weren't allowed on the uh, on the carrier, and we weren't allowed to uh, uh, to deploy, which is no bad thing because they deployed for six months at a time, and you know to go on exchange and then bugger off for six months would have gone down uh, badly with my uh, wife old thing. Uh, anyway, so um, off go one twenty one, and then. They couldn't find anywhere to put me. So um, I had nearly three months sitting on the ground, not going to work. Um, so I, I went a bit uh, a bit off the rails, I think. I was a bit feral and uh, I was trying to – I rang the embassy every day for a couple of weeks and they, they couldn't sort anything out. So I just said, right, I'll be on the beach then. Uh, eventually I got a call that um, there was a reserve unit at, uh, at Miramar didn't even know they were there. A VMFA one thirty four, and um, they've they've managed to tackle me a, a slot on this reserve unit, and and there we go. So um, I turned up at Miramar, and it's uh, single seat Hornets. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm getting to fly single seat um, straight away. Having flown twin seat for the last eighteen months or so, I'm thinking, oh god, I won't be able to do single seat because I'll I'll be shit and uh, at such. So. And to quash that down, I'd flown single seat on the OCU, so it shouldn't have, shouldn't have been a problem. 
And then, um, uh, but it was the older A models. And the, I think these were the oldest A models, certainly at Miramar and certainly in, uh, um, in circulation at, at the time. So no AMRAM, no uh, APG-73. It was back to the 65 uh, radar and firing Sparrows, um, you know, the uh, AIM-9 mics. So it was the, um, uh, the top AIM-9. But back to the uh, supported missiles, all the way to uh, all the way to the merge. So, um, so there's a bit of a change in tactics, you know, mindset and and stuff like that. I've been used to um, the thing with Amram is nothing outsticked it. It was it was the best missile of its time at that at that moment. So um, everybody we went against, we, if we wanted to, we we just strolled down Main Street, you know, and uh, and loose these things off. And uh, eventually, they'd go active and um, and 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 do their thing, and you could turn around and run away if you if you wanted to. Um, it, I mean, I, I talk camera up. It, it's a, it's a blisteringly good um, uh, weapon, but it's not a Flash Gordon death ray. But it, you know, it's it's not far from uh, uh, from that. So it's, it was proper fire and forget. Um, whereas the Sparrow, which I was going to go and uh, fly with now. I mean, some of those old sparrows—they, they, you know—they get into life ex as opposed to fire and forget. It, you were, you were like fire and well, fucking hell, it hasn't tracked. Let's let's fire another one, you know, and, <laughs> and you'd end up going into fights that you, you didn't really want to go into. So, um, so it's a bit of a mindset to change with it. And then I arrive for my first day on the on the squadron, and it's all reservists. There's one full time marine who's the ops officer, and I'm working alongside uh, alongside him. And the rest are airline guys who were Marines, joined the airlines. And um, in those days, if you joined an airline in the States as ex-military, it, it was an odd thing. They had a load of 727s and 747s out in those days. A lot of the pilots joined as flight engineers. Yeah. Um, and they did a year as flight engineer just getting into the company, earning next to nothing. So that's why they joined the reserves to bolster their pay. But also they got to fly uh, Hornets, you know, it was kind of a, a sweet deal for them, uh, I think. Um, and then I, I met these guys and they were just, they were just a different breed. It's putting a smile on my face uh, now. They they were old school Marines, a lot of them. So um, a lot of them are, uh, were ex-Phantom. So it was an instant connection uh, there. The, the day I arrived on the squadron, you, we had um, like a muster weekend every month where all of the reserves had to come in it was a mandatory uh, thing and um i met them at the first muster weekend dear god they started bantering me from minute one and i thought wow i'm, I'm gonna need to be on my toes with uh, uh, with these guys and um and they were just uh, they were just brilliant it was such a good setup so we had a a boss who's the most mellow guy i think i've ever worked for um he flew 747s for northwest airlines uh, except he didn't. After, even after all of those years, he remained as a flight engineer. So it was a bizarre thing. I once said to him, I said, what's it like flying 747, Stuart, and then flying a Hornet? And he went, well, I don't fly the 747. I'm a flight engineer. I said, sorry, you're the boss of a Hornet squadron, and you're a flight engineer. And he went, yeah, yeah. He said, when I joined Northwest, um, they, they had a bit of a, went through a bad period. Lots of people got furloughed. And, um, and he said, I just stayed as a flight engineer. And they'd offered him straight into the captain's seat tons and tons of times. 
but he said that he was number two or number three in the hierarchy of flight engineers. So if he bid for a line, he, he always got the line the, yeah. that he that he got. So every month he would do a 10-day trip to Japan and that area, and the rest of the time he'd either be on uh, leave or uh, or running his um, F-18 squad. And wait, That's what crazy. A, what a super uh, – and he was, he was a super guy as uh, as well. So I slotted in next to the ops officer. I was there every day um, that uh, that the squadron was were, was was flying. Most of the reserves weren't. They'd bob in a, f- a few each uh, each day. I flew twice a day every day almost. I've got something like I think it was over three hundred hours in fifteen sixteen months. So I was just flying my ass off and um, and and getting to grips with the. With flying single seat again, right, right at the start. So it's brilliant, yeah. Just, just for context, then, am I correct in thinking that three hundred hours would be what you would maybe expect over a three-year stint? Typically, hundred hours a year would that be about right? Uh, it would be these days, but uh, in those days, um, God, you could fly as much as you wanted in the states. So when on my first tour in the uh, Phantom, I probably threw it, flew. Um, 250 hours a year that would be the average of the time i was on the phantom yeah um um 30 hours a month was not not unheard of it was a great month was 30 hours a month but we'd normally be around uh, 20 to 25 hours a month um when i got to the states god there was um there were three months in a row i flew i think it was 30 hours 32 hours and then one month i flew 40 hours uh, because um, we went on the road for the weekend. Uh, last time I spoke to you, I took about that, um, the best weekend in a flying suit. Um, that put 12 hours on the jets that, that weekend. So um, put 12 hours in my logbook. If you wanted to, you could go on the road every weekend if you wanted to. Not my predecessor, but his predecessor. He got 1,000 hours in um, in three years on the Hornet, but he was he was on the road every weekend, you know, whereas – you know, I lived in Ocean Beach. I, d- I didn't want to be on the. I didn't want to be flying stinking aeroplanes at the weekend. I wanted to be, you know, a half-assed attempt at surfing that I used to uh, that I used to try. <laughs> so it was about more about a lifestyle thing for uh, uh, for me. But yeah, I flew my ass off on the on the reserves. Uh, you said in the last episode that uh, so let's let's talk about the mission of this reserve squadron. But you said that that uh, you flew you flew brown hornets. Um, yeah. Does that suggest were you in are you in, were you an adversary training squadron? So I think the rest of um, uh, certainly the U.S. Air Force thought that we were a, an adversary squadron because we flew brown hornets, and uh, of course the F fives out of Yuma they flew brown F uh, fives. And so, and they were part of our group as well. It was Mag Forty Six, Marine Air Group Forty Six, uh, included VMFA. What were they? Four Hundred One, I think, was the uh, the Yuma F Fives. They were a full on aggressor squadron, but we weren't. We were. Um, if the balloon went up and war started, One Thirty Four would be made to active, full active status, and and would go to war, uh, just because it it said reserve. Um, you know, in the paperwork. Mm. It, it didn't mean to say that we we supported everybody else. Although, uh, like I said, a couple of times we flew against F-15s in particular. I think they thought we were um, we were there to just provide targets uh, uh, for them. Um, that leads into a, a, a story of when we deployed to Alaska. 
fly the F-15s up in Elmendorf. We'll tell you about that later. But um, uh, we we were a proper uh, proper squadron. It's just that we were mostly um, manned by part-timers. And that includes the ground crew as well. There was some permanent ground crew, but a lot of those were, were reservists as well. We, I mean, on this channel, I talked to a lot of um, fighter pilots about atrophying of skills, currency. Um, you know, a recent guest was talking about how when he became a squadron commander, an F-15 squadron commander, and a vice wing commander, he, he went on to become. He said he was basically useless. He 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 could fly number four in a in a formation of red air, yeah. you know, but he wasn't. He couldn't. He wasn't going to go go and deploy. You know, there were the guys on the on the on the squadrons were much better than he was at that point because he he didn't yeah. fly very much and he was getting older anyway so so the obvious question i would ask tug is is if you've got these reservists and they're spending a lot of time out of the f18 they're coming in maybe once a month maybe twice a month whatever the frequency is how does that or how did that impact their proficiency their competency in the let's just say bfm arena and in, in, yeah. in the in the <clears throat> fighting arena what did, what did you observe so first off, um, uh, when you talk about that F-15 guy, you know, going out to high rank and um, not being so good, it was probably shit to start with, you know, being an <laughs> F-15 uh, uh, guy. So, um, you know, it's all relative and that, uh, when it comes to it. So the bizarre thing was these guys would uh, fly their airliners for the, uh, uh, for the, uh, for the week and then, and then come in on their days off to, to fly with us. And what you saw was um, – a definite difference in in the group. So there'd been people who'd been there as a reservist for quite some time. They were still really handy, though. That that's the thing. Um, there is that um, trade off between experience and competence uh, of currency, I, I, I would say. And those two things meld together to build what you would call competence, I guess. And the older you get, the more you rely on this stuff here because the stuff where you're working really hard down here as a new guy, um, you, you I, I suppose you lose a little bit of motivation to do that. That's a general broad broad brush thing. And I'm not I'm not particularly pointing at any of the reserves. That that occurs for me as well. You know, when I went to fly the Tornado F three, um, I probably should have put in a lot more work than I uh, than I did, but I relied a lot on experience and I was able to do that because I was was flying quite often. So some of the guys on the reserve unit, all of them, all of them great guys, um, relied a lot more on their experience and a little bit of, uh, you know, fighter pilot mindset and a bit of mischief to achieve what, uh, what they did. It still astounded me that they could fly an airliner for, uh, four days in a row and then come in and do two solid days with us. They didn't pop in once a month. The guys who popped in once a month were generally binned off the squadron uh, because the group wanted people to th – there was a minimum amount that they had to fly each month, a minimum amount of reserve days they had to uh, they had to put in, and it wasn't as stark as once or twice a month. We get guys in that um, we'd, we'd see them for a whole week. They'll come and fly with us for a uh, for a whole week. But very quickly, they're leading a four-ship of Hornets, and that just that just blew my mind. And uh, you saw some things that, that – um, weren't quite so sharp and other things that you just thought, my God, how are they even doing this? And that, so that's the, that's the very, ex the older guys have been there a while. And then we got a lot of new guys pumped in from the, uh, uh, from the bottom. I mentioned last time we had, we had two ex Top Gun instructors come straight from instructing at Top Gun, joined 
whatever airline it was, the 727 flight engineers, and spent most of their life flying Hornets on this reserve unit until they got through their first year and then they started training as pilots at the airlines. I imagine it uh, it tailed off a little bit. Well, they were sharp as sharp as you as you can get, and um, and actually, I suppose all those new guys sort of kept the older guys a little bit fresher um, than they normally would have been. I didn't see the the things that I saw that that didn't quite work uh, was the um, the sort of attitude towards. General professionalism, I suppose, briefing and debriefing. So um, I, I flew a couple of times um, at Miramar, and I, I said we'd, we'd fly, then land, go through the hot pits, refuel and go straight uh, out and fly again. Uh, while we're waiting to be refueled in the hot pits, there was a bit of a hot debrief on the back radio, which would go like, yeah, anybody got anything to say? No. So then you tune in, talk radio on the uh, on the on the HF set or something. Listen to what all the bloody bigots were talking about on talk radio because there was some horrific stuff on that, and and wait for your turn in the hot pits and then go out and fly again. Now a number of times I landed, maybe as number four. By the time I taxied in, gone through the hot pits and then gone to shut down, the leader of the formation he, he buggered off. It, so there was no there was no debrief uh, as such, apart from anybody got anything on the on the back radio, and um, and that that kind of blew my mind a little bit, you know, because I was still a full time aviator, and um, and that that was just the one thing that I think I was a bit at odds with. Briefing wasn't uh, as uh, nailed down professional as I'd um, as I'd seen at. Uh, on 121 squadron but that's gonna that's gonna happen you know i just needed to adjust my uh what i needed to do so when i briefed i briefed like i normally briefed i debriefed like i normally uh debriefed um but i tried to go with the flow with um with everyone else nothing in the air really that that made me go god you're kidding aren't you this is madness there was nothing like uh like that, other than the normal madness of um, of doing of flying a Hornet, you know, and dropping bombs and shooting missiles and gun shoots and and all that sort of stuff, the stuff I told you last time about, um, you know, going first solo at night was thirty degree dive bombing. You know, there's, other than that kind of madness, there was nothing extra with uh, uh, with the reserves. You said you're at Miramar, so you're are you you're co-located with with the Top Gun School. Um, if I'm correct in remembering, they, they yeah. moved from Miramar, didn't they? I don't know when they, yeah, they, went, they to, went to Fallon. Yeah, Fallon, yeah. yeah. Well, they, so they, were, they bet, still, were they still at Miramar when you were there? Half and half. So half I, and half. Um, okay. when I was on 121, uh, my first squadron, we flew out of the Top Gun hangar. We were based in the hangar that said Top Gun on it, nice. which was quite cool. They then moved up to uh, to Fallon. And when I moved across to um, uh, the uh, reserve unit 134, we worked out of the hangar opposite the Top Gun hangar. They said Fighter Town USA on it. You know, oh, come on. You know, it couldn't have been there. Uh, it couldn't have been any better. So, did you support them a lot? I, I know I don't know really much about the Navy Fighter Weapons School, but I know talking to the Fighter Weapons School you, from the US Air Force point of view, they get a lot of um, units to come in and support them to play Red Air or do whatever. Because you were co-located with them or semi-co-located with them, did, did you support them much? Did you interact with them much? 
Not once, no. Not no once. Nothing mm. to do with uh, Toco, which is bizarre, uh, really, because, uh, you know, when I arrived at Miramar, there were F-14s there, um, lots of F-18s. Would have been the perfect uh, uh, perfect opportunity. But, um, but I, I mean, other squadrons might have done, but I didn't. We supported the uh, uh, weapon school at Nellis quite often. And uh, I did that both on 121 and on uh, VMFA 134. Um, but when you, it, it, that's the thing, you, you support the weapon school at, um, at, uh, at Nellis. You are just a service provider for them. And, uh, when I went with 121, they, they treated us like shit, like, like we really, really didn't know what, uh, what we were doing. One particular, uh, trip. Um, so I was leading our, no, I, I wasn't leading our four ship. I was the other element lead. We briefed up a, a, a 2v4 against F-15. So we were the four targets, and it was two F-15Es. And they briefed the whole thing up, and then we went into our formation brief. And we launched, and we we launched, and we were waiting in the area to find that the F-15Es had cancelled, but they didn't think to tell us. Now, they cancelled because the student crew failed the brief. Not, not any, not... Um, technical or anything like that on startup, they failed the brief, and those arseholes let us walk a four ship of F-18s, eight aircrew, probably sat there getting bollocks, you know, for failing the brief, watching us out the window get airborne, four aeroplanes launch, and then we get to the play area and told that, oh, yeah, they failed the brief. So when we got back down, I, I stormed into their um, uh, their kind of briefing space and found the instructors and and basically said, what the hell do you think you're, you're playing at? Yeah, we're targets for you, but treat us with a bit of uh, bit of respect, you know. But I think I think the Marines were kind of used to being treated like that by the U.S. Air Force. The Marines, are compared to the U.S. Air Force, they're the bastard stepchildren of uh, military aviation. And now, now I get onto the reserves, we're the bastard, bastard stepchildren. You know, we're even lower than uh, full-time Marines. And we fly brown hornets, therefore we must be targets. And Therefore, we're treated like uh, like dirt by the U.S. Air Force. That really rubbed me up the the, the wrong way. I think I said to you last time, the Marine Corps really got under my skin. You, you know, they by by and by that I mean the camaraderie of it. And I wasn't a Marine, but the day I arrived, they treated me like I was a Marine, and they'd have walked over broken glass for me. So the way I repay them is by showing them my loyalty. And I hated it when they um, uh, when the U.S. Air Force would would look down their noses uh, uh, at us. I say the U.S. Air Force, I make it sound like it's the whole of the U.S. Air Force. Generally, they're weapons instructors, but weapons instructors are bastards the world over. You know, it it seems to be. I've I've got uh, an absolute loathing of most QIs, you know. Um, That's just, uh, yeah, uh, awful memories from uh, from my past in training. Uh, But... um, yeah, so it's not the U.S. Air Force as a whole, but but they had to. How could you even do that? How, how do you think that that would be acceptable? That you allow four aeroplanes to get airborne, waiting for you, and you're not even going to bother launching it? it? That's shocking, I think. What did they say to you when when you said, you know, show show us a bit of respect? Did you get a response? Any? I know I was pretty much stuck on transmits uh, uh, <laughs> uh, at that point. There were times, and and this was the thing I'd. Um, uh, we're back to being on 121. Um, one of the um, one of the 
four ships that we did. It was against some F-16 uh, guys. And there's an F-16 weapons instructor who's leading the whole thing. And my God, he loved himself. You know, he was God's gift to to aviation. And um, treated us like absolute dirt in the in the briefing. And my boss was in that that four ship of ours. And he was a he was a very, very cool uh, ex Phantom backseater. I loved flying with him. He was so capable, even for an older, older guy, you know. And um I I I had a bit of a set two with this guy in the uh, in the brief. And the boss we came out and the boss said um he said he just had a smile on his face the whole time. He said, uh, Tug, I appreciate what you're doing. I really appreciate it. He said, but we get this treatment all the time, you know. Don't lose heartbeats uh, uh, over it, you know. Um, but th- there's always a way of of getting uh, satisfaction. That particular trip, the um, the leader of the F-16s was the weapons instructor. He was demoing the, the whole thing. Uh, the first split that we did, there, there was a lot of cloud around, and so we were quite high level. The first split that we did, um, he took his foreship below the hard deck. At the start of the intercept, we were 50 miles away, and he he took his uh, foreship below the hard deck. And um, so they terminated the fight and uh, and reset. And uh, I think, like I said, I was element lead to number three. and. Um, and and just called up why why are we resetting? We were working up a guy as number one. It, you know, I shouldn't be asking these things. My number one should in the formation, but he was on a workup. You know, and I uh, we were assessing him. So I just called it to our ground controls. Why is the reset? Oh, they went through the hard deck. Now that to me, that's four aeroplanes dead. Yep. Um, so and that's on the first split. Anything else we do on the trip after that is meaningless. But let's do it anyway for for. Um, training purposes we got the debrief and um they always start with any safety points it's a massive safety point so he said any safety points not a single one of the f-16s spoke up i looked at the boss he just had a big smile on his face i thought right we'll let this ride and, and see where we go and he went right into blah 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 right the first split then and he starts talking about the second split and uh and i said shall we talk about the first split first this is the first split no it isn't he said yes it is i said no the first split all four of you, and I pointed to all of them, uh, you all flew through the hard deck, guys. So you're all dead. That's, yeah, we we terminated that. I said, well, well done. You terminated it after you were dead. And this is how you, this is, a, no, I, I make it sound like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, again, God's gift to aviation. I'm not. When something is wrong like that, I always put my hand on my heart and say, that is on me. They wouldn't do that. But they treated us like shit in the brief. So, look, guys, if you're going to set yourselves up on a pedestal like that, you have to perform to that level all the time, okay? When you fall down, I want to see people go, all right, I'll hold my hand up uh, with that. The whole thing got very, uh, very chippy. But that's how we debrief in the Royal Air Force. So, um, and they can look down on us because we're Marines. Yeah, and underneath that, my wings say RAF, and we don't stand for uh, for that kind of crap. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was how that uh, that came out. That's one of yeah probably ten occasions where you know um, weapons instructors in the U.S. Air Force and F-15 uh, squadrons looked down on us because we were Marines. And it, uh, like I said, it was even worse when I was in the reserves uh, because um, they thought we were part timers playing at, at military aviation. 
With regards to that, then, so their their perceptions versus your performance. So you obviously just characterised a mistake on their part. But were you able then, through your actions, through your actions, were you able to sort of address those um, those prejudices? Did you did did you regularly beat them? Yeah. One thing that I thought was really interesting when we started the last episode, the, the previous episode, was you said you never lost to the F fifteen in BFM in the Hornet. Um, so I just wondered whether or not. You know whether whether you could, whether you went out in those situations and then demonstrated your prowess and and your actions were able to speak louder than your words. Yeah, uh, this is a long answer if you're uh, Go ahead, uh, yeah. if you're happy yeah. because it relates to the um, the detachment we did to Elmendorf Air Base in Alaska. Look uh, again. Uh, let me just start with a bit of balance. Um, back to the back to the air combat um, trips that we did the one v one stuff. Um, yeah, I had I had my arse handed to me by plenty of F-16s. It was a really, really hard fight. Was the F-16, um, and I, I loathed fight fighting one v one against it because uh, I knew it was going to be hard. Um, I, I won fifty percent of the fights against an F-16 and got my ass shot off fifty uh, percent of the time. I never lost a one v one against the F-15 uh, in a Hornet because the Hornet is is spectacular. Um, uh, for that, an F-15 could uh, make it a hard fight and a long fight, but eventually, if I didn't run out of fuel, eventually uh, any Hornet pilot should be able to uh, to be an F-15. So we, uh, we find out that um, we're being deployed to Elmendorf Air Base for two weeks, and I'm I'm beside myself because I'm I'm going to get to see Alaska. You know, I'll probably never get to see that in my life. Um, all the reserves, though, I'd been on the squadron maybe about six months by then, so I knew them, I knew them really well. They were all moaning and whining about going to Elmendorf. I said, all right, okay, I can't understand it. It's cold and we're in California, but what's the big deal? And then the, I got this story, oh, we were there last year, Tom. All right. Uh, and it didn't go well. <laughs> right. So what, what do you mean? Well, we went up there and they treated us like shit because we're reserves and fly brown hornets. They had this mindset that we were aggressors. And therefore, we were targets just for them. So they, the F-15s played blue air, so the friendlies, you know, every day. Normally, you'd, you'd swap blue air and red air around. Now, when you're red air, as a Hornet, you're not allowed to use your full-up radar. You have to use a uh, reduced range in the scope. You're not allowed to maneuver as hard as you can in a Hornet. You're not allowed to fly a Hornet. You're trying to be a MiG-29, and there's all sorts of restrictions. Basically, what you're supposed to go up there is suck suck on every AMRAM that they shoot at you. You never get closer than 20 miles away from each other, and they pat themselves on the back at a job well done. That's fine. I don't mind doing that, but we need to swap that each each day so that we get a chance to do blue air as well. Well, they didn't. The F-15, two F-15 squadrons up there, they played blue air every every day. And that's fine, but show a bit of kind of grace and class with it. They were high-fiving each other in debriefs every time they got a shot. You know, it was, it was that kind of uh, stuff. I don't mind having a bit of arrogance, fighter pilot arrogance, but, you know, have a bit of class uh, uh, with it. Anyway, so um, it goes to the end of that debt, and there's always a beer call and a bit of a present giving. And when you fly against an F-15 unit, they always give you a massive photograph of an F-15. You know, like you give a shit, you know. Uh, all right, oh god, there's another picture of an F-15 super, and they write stuff around it and sign their names. That's normally what you would, uh, what you present uh, back to them as well. 
But apparently around the outside, it was, hey, uh, great to see you in my gun site. Hope you managed to pick all the missiles out of your ass and, and stuff like that. All right, bit of banter, but guys, you didn't let them fly F-18s. You, you know, they were flying crappy MiG-29s. So um, now the Marines being reservists and being, uh, let's say, a little mischievous at, at best, their present back to the F-15 squadrons, I, I, it's still making me laugh now, was a, pe- a, a block of arbitrary wood with a fake dog poo nailed onto it, and underneath it kind of said, thanks for nothing, it was shit, blood BFA, BMFA 134. <laughs> now, uh, that, that got presented, but crinkled faces from the uh, US Air Force. Now, no kidding, Steve, this isn't urban legend. Apparently, it went right to the top of the Air Force. The commander of the Air Force walks across the Pentagon to the commandant of the Marine Corps and goes, have you seen this? You know, So he sends it down with his shit on it. Anyway, their plan up at the Pentagon is, right, how should we sort this out? Let's throw them together again the following year and they can they can sort it out. I like that's going to work, you know. So um, brilliant, brilliant senior officer thinking. So that we're all going up and they've all got attitude and I, I, I can't wait to go. We arrive and they allocate us our accommodation. And it, it was almost like, you know, the admin officer went uh, – Right, you're in uh, uh, building 429. Uh, your uh, transport is outside. And one of the Marines said, where are we staying? And he went, uh, uh, building 429. Uh, the coach is outside. And he and this Marine, that one of our reservists went, is that the crack house? And uh, and he goes, well, well, we don't like to call it that. And he goes, they put us in the fucking crack house again. Fucking hell. And all these Marines are raging. And I said to one of them, I said, uh, I said what's the crack house? And they said, Worst accommodation you've ever seen, Tuck. Uh, uh, yeah, it can't be that bad. It was two porter cabins, end on end, <laughs> and they'd been they'd been built on a swamp, and they had subsided into the swamp. This is this is absolutely true. I don't make this up. So we cut our way through a a, um, uh, a curtain of mosquitoes, get through the screen door, and and I walk down this corridor at an angle to get to my bedroom. <laughs> Anyway, I dump my bags. There's a bed, a wardrobe, a sink. What more do you need for two weeks? And we hit downtown Anchorage. Have you ever been to Anchorage, Steve? Um, I've been to Almondorf, but not to Anchorage. Oh, my God. Anchorage in the 90s. That city was the last frontier, the final frontier of human decency. I saw stuff in the bars there that turned my hair white (laughs) and and turned it brown again afterwards. So it it was absolutely shocking what was going on in those bars but we came out at 11 30 at night and it was it was bright sunshine absolutely bright sunshine because we were there middle of summer took my breath away got back to the uh, crack house had a quick shower and and then thought i'll uh, you know get some kip we've only got in briefs the next day i go to close my curtains and they met there and there was <laughs> there was like 12 inches between the curtains with the sun streaming through my window i just thought oh god i, I was I was hanging out of my ass by the end of that two weeks. I didn't get a decent night's sleep at all. Anyway, it started off, usual thing. We're playing Red Air. The It's the F-15 benefit concert. You know, they shoot everybody <laughs> down. They they blah, 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 and, and, and this. And so, anyway, they compromised one day, and they said, um, sorry, I finally got to the part of the story you're interested in. They compromised one day and said, um, right, we'll do 1v1 uh Air combat, dissimilar air combat. And so we're thinking, right, you full up Hornet. Yep, full up Hornet, full up F-15. 
awesome. So this is our chance to just redress the balance a little bit. Um, and each time, each time we did one, we had, we had two F-15s and two F, uh, F-18s. And we'd split off to opposite ends of the area, one F-15, one F-18, and, and we'd fight. So I go into the briefing with a, a, a guy, his call sign is Stay, and he was XF4, and I think he had 2,000 hours F-18. And he was one of these older guys who'd been there a while, but holy shit, he was still he was still sharp as, as nails. So we go in there and we sit down. There's a brand new guy out of training on the on the F-15 uh, who's doing a bit of workup and a newly qualified air combat leader. So this young lad, he looked like he was 12 years old, you know. So he's briefing up and he starts off with, right, how many hours have you got on the uh, uh, Hornet stain? And he said, oh, just over 2,000. And he went, tug. And I said, uh, about 400. And he said, okay, so what would it, we have to have an air combat leader in each pair. And I thought, yeah, I'm an air combat leader as well, son. You know, uh, have you not son. tweaked that I'm wearing a Union Jack and RAF wings? I'm not a bog standard Marine here. But he just didn't, he didn't tweak any of that. So he goes, right, Stain, if you can take Beaker out, you know, and uh, and and Tug, I'll show you the ropes. Uh, <laughs> no. All right, so it's fine, and and you just you just sort of chomp down on it because it's the F-15s and and that's what they are. So anyway, we get we get into our little briefings. He starts trying to teach me air combat in the uh, in the Hornet. Oh, right, okay. So well, we'll let this ride because we're going to fight against each other. It's, I think it's going to be ugly for him. So we'll just see how he how he goes. And then he, um, bearing in mind, I'd taught air combat for three years on the Hawk, and I'd been teaching it on the F-18 as well. Well, well fair enough. And then he said something. It, I thought, well, we'll, we'll go okay. And then he, he just wound me up completely with his, with one of his comments. He said, um, do you want to do an offensive set first, you know, with, with me in, up on the perch like that, and you, you do the offensive first stuff just to just to – get your eye in and stuff like that and i went no mate i think we'll go straight in and see how it goes shall we and he went okay but if you need a break during the trip you you just let me know and we'll do an offensive perch okay and that was the thing and that's i, I thought i'm not sure if this kid knows where the cleaners is but at the end of this trip he fucking will because that's where i'm gonna take him you know so uh i mean oh god i sound really arrogant don't I? but he just rubbed me up the wrong way and we went out we had three splits and uh, and I thought I'm going to teach him a thing or two here, not about just the manoeuvring of air combat, but about attitude and and being humble. Uh, the first split, I did I did a, a deception thing on the on the first split, um, which he didn't pick up at all, and so we ended up merging. Uh, what what he did was he called tally uh, as we coming towards each other. I'm supposed to call tally, and then he'll call fights on. Um, so he calls tally and I just kept quiet, started waggling my wings like that, which is the um, international sign that you've lost your radio. So what he should have done was terminated the fight there, okay, and the trick wouldn't have worked. What he did was he floated right past me going, uh, tug, radio check, you know, like that, at which point I just turned in behind him and, and gunned him. And, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's a stupid little uh, little thing. But he wasn't ready for it because he's he's newly promoted as an ACL and he thinks he knows everything, and uh, and he didn't. Uh, the second one, I did a, a, a. Once you've lost the first fight, you're screwed mentally. You're, you're absolutely screwed, and you're not going to be on your game. The second fight, I I did a really stupid 
thing at the merge, I dumped all of my speed pre-merge. And um, and as he turned across my tail, I went single circle. And at low speed, the, the, the F-18's nose just whipped round uh, like that. It wasn't a great tactic to tell you the truth. But if you were nose pointing, it, it was it was great. I mean, we were in min range for, for everything apart from the gun, but I didn't have the energy to saddle up and, and gun him. So I just over the radio, I called Fox 2 as if I'd fired a sidewinder. I hadn't fired it at all because I was hugely min range. But the idiot popped flares out and started um, uh, defending against an imaginary missile. Uh, that, and, and he just ditched, ditched all his speed. While he was doing that, I was just unloading to get uh, to get speed on the aeroplane, and now he's in my he's in my shit box, you know, which is low speed, and the F eighteen it, it was unbeatable at, at that, so I ended up uh, gunning him there, and then um, the third split, I, I did a, I, I played I played it properly, I, I did it as if we uh, we just merged, and um, my my Hornet did its beautiful pirouetting batshit crazy maneuver thing that, that that it did and uh it was almost like i could have let go of the stick and the jet would have um uh would have beat him on its own and uh and oh that was it just prior to the last um split um i said to you last time 1v1's not real hmm. it's about what goes on up here and, what, and what's in your heart so um you can win the fight before the merge on the third one, bearing in mind he's been gunned twice because I've played tricks on him, and and it's not gone the way that he thought it was going to. The third one, I, I just I just said, shall we go two shot kill on the uh, on the radio rather than just one shot to kill? We'll do two shots uh, to kill. It's a thing that we do to prolong fights a little bit, and you could hear it in his voice. He was absolutely lost, and he went, uh, yeah, let's do two shot. Uh, we'll do two shot kill then. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you you misunderstand. I'll go two shot kill. You know, you just stick with single shot, and um, and and it, it, it was just beaten down. He was finished uh, by that. When we get into the debrief afterwards, um, I don't mind. I don't mind that so long as you, like I said, you go a bit mea culpa. You caught me out there and and stuff. My God, he started debriefing like uh, like he was the air combat leader, and and it was shocking to see that he was trying to pull some kind of victory out of this i mean disastrous trip that he uh, that he'd been on and uh a few minutes in i just said that, that was it he, he asked me you know what um what what speed did you have on the airplane this was on the second one where i dished all the speed i, I said I, I don't know and he said what do you mean you don't know i oh, you know i had i had 320 knots at this point but i said congratulations you you died with a great energy package on on your airplane and he went what do you mean? I said, right, just sit down. I got him to sit down and I said, look, I'm, I'm not your bog standard Marine. I've been teaching air combat for a number of years and we did a proper uh, debrief on it. And, um, and it, to, to be fair, at the end of it, he, he was, he was a bit shell shocked by the, by the whole thing, but you know, he, he took it on the, uh, took it on the chin because he had no other option, uh, but to do that. So that's the only time you know, that we would redress the balance. If I was, um, I told you about a Top Gun instructor last time who was all over me, mm. okay, and he absolutely destroyed me. Um, but I wanted to know in the debrief how he was able to do that. And so, even if you've lost or you've or you've beaten somebody up, the debrief is there to learn uh, about about what 
why you got into that that position in the first place. And I would always, if I was flying against somebody who was less experienced, if they lost the first fight, we'd generally look at, right, how can we do a bit of stuff over the radio? You know, right, this time, have a go at trying this um, because that will be a problem. For me. And there was a couple of times during that trip, he could have been all over me um, if he'd recognised what I was doing and the fact that I ditched all the energy on the second one, he could have just powered out of it and and left me stranded, you know, in a uh, really in the hurt locker. But um, but he he was so off his game by then because I'd, I'd beaten him up on the first the first one. Um, that and that's what I was trying to say to him. It's not just about the manoeuvring of the aeroplane. You, you you're constantly talking about the energy, how much speed you've got, and uh, EM diagrams and and things like that. That's not what this is. This is about who you are as a person, you know. Do you really want to beat me? How, do, do you want it more than I do? And 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 taught him that side of things rather than just the pure manoeuvring uh, of it. And you know, I, did, I didn't lord it over him. I, I I'd adjusted that attitude in the air. I, I felt, and um, and, but the debrief's not uh, not for that unless they come at you with a bit of fire. In which case, it is, you know, got a long old uh, long old answer. Eh? It's hilarious though. Yeah, and, great and, story. And, and very. I do and- love that. And very interesting. I mean, do, do you think that any of that stuff is uh, would have been absorbed and uh, you know, put to use in in, in future fights? I think so. I, so we came out. Um, it's an interesting thing here. Uh, I make it sound like we were constantly in conflict with the with the F-15s or the US Air Force. We weren't. So after that, we came out of our two ship debrief and out came Stain with uh, uh, with Beaker. And Beaker looked like a like a wet rag. You know, he was a new guy, so he was going to get his ass handed to him. And um, and Beaker uh, kind of said, "We'll, we'll come in. It's all, it's all friendly, you know. It wasn't antagonistic." And Beaker said, uh, "Oh man, Stain was all over my ass." And uh, this guy, Batman, is uh, is callsign was. Um, uh, he went, uh, "Yeah, well, I just came up against Captain Fucking Combat." And so we we went. It, it was in the afternoon, and we went to the bar as a four. And they drowned their sorrows, and we had a bit of a laugh uh, about it. And then this guy, Batman, he was um, – I said, are you, are you up against us tomorrow? We didn't do any more 1v1 after that day. It was all it was all canned after that. And, and he said, no, I'm on, um, I'm on alert because Almendorf does alert, you know, the border of uh, Alaska with, uh, with Russia. And I used to love doing QRA. I used to love um, uh, doing alerts. And I said, I said, would you mind showing me around? And he said, I'd absolutely love to. And so the next day I drove to the alert shed and um, and this guy that, you know, we'd had a bit of a set to in the, in the trip, then showed me around their, their alert shed, uh, shed, sat me in his aeroplane. Uh, I walked across the top of an F-15. I mean, it, it was like, it, it was like 100 metres long, you know. It was absolutely massive. And, and I think he got a kick out of uh, telling me about how they do alert and, you know, it's, we're talking the same language, but but it was a different way of being in the shed, you know. And mm. and and I think um, I don't I don't want people to get the impression that we we hated the F-15s and and they um, uh, and we were always in conflict with them. They were our brothers in arms, you know. And uh, and when it came to it, um, yes, if the one of them meets with a bit of arrogance and we do a bit one v one, I'll try and beat him up. But if then for some reason we were fully armed. And we were vectored against two MiG twenty nines. He's my brother in arms, you know. And uh, I, 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 
kill both MiG-29s, and I put myself at risk to do that in order to uh, to save him, and I knew he would do that for me as well. Mm. T- tell me a bit, Tug, about the, your... Uh, overall impressions of the eagle uh, in comparison to the hornet then from a, a bvr point of view or from you know a, a multi you know 4v4 type yeah. scenario um wh- where was the eagle strong and um and i'm curious to know i mean there's there's a there's the appropriate level of banter coming from you about the the eagle community uh, which is great to hear because as i said i've just had a guest on who's 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 uh, trashed every other community with his banter yeah, so course, it's, yeah. it's good it's good oh, that there's it, balance yeah. um but but tell me whether or not you would like to have flown it and, and where did you see it being strong what did, what did you admire about it or like about it I, I would have loved to have flown an f-15 i would have loved to have flown an f-16 uh as well do you know the f-15s as much as we bantered them about being anal they're, they're quite anal people not not particularly flexible that's that's how we always viewed them um nobody but nobody i state this now in my era nobody but nobody was more disciplined on the radar um, a BVR than an F-15 formation. That the bar not okay. They uh, uh, they they'd set up that wall of. They could do an eight ship wall, um, coordinated eight ship wall. They could do a four ship wall with another four ship wall uh, behind them, and they've got belt fed amrams. You know, so that's a that's a serious amount of uh, of firepower. Now with something like amram that um, we used to call it the air shark. I think it was. You, you shoot an AMRAM and it's going for its target. And then if, if another AMRAM destroys that target from another aeroplane, what it does is it opens up the radar and it'll shoot whatever the hell else is in there. And, and it's like a shark. It just goes for uh, uh, stuff like that. That comes with its own problems. Mm. And therefore, there's a lot of blue-on-blue risk uh, with, uh, with that. Once that F-15 wall gets manoeuvred, you know, breaks or starts uh, turning cold because of, uh, AMRAMs going active and stuff like that. That's where there was an opportunity for them to break down as far as discipline went. But from a first push, my God, why wouldn't you want four F-15s in front of you um, clearing the way? They just ploughed the uh, ploughed the field. And I don't think anybody was as good at, at doing that as the uh, as the F-15, uh, just because of their anal discipline on on the uh, on the radar. Now, as we're going into a, uh, a uh, an intercept, you know, you'll you'll overlap uh, radar. So some some will be looking up, some will be looking down um, to clear to basically sanitise the airspace. If you're looking down and you hear that, uh, you know, that all the targets are up, uh, there is a point where we're going to meld the radars where we go. We've we've checked all that down there, um, so there is a, a range where we meld the radars. Now, those that are coming up now have to paint that picture up there, sort who they're going to shoot and, and 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 shoot, and that's quite hard work to do. You know, it's quite uh, quite intense. You know, everybody else apart from their fifteen driver is probably going. You know, can't see anything down there. Well, I'll just have a sneaky look up there. Uh, oh, uh, go back down there a bit. Let's have a sneaky look. F fifteens don't do that. They're really really disciplined, so they rarely get caught out. I think with unseen aeroplanes getting in until after they've uh, after they've melded the radars up there when there shouldn't be anything down there once everything starts maneuvering and you know goes up and down and all that sort of stuff uh, they're in the mix with every other fighter pilot that I've uh, that I've ever seen oh plus the fact I mean it is 
scorchingly fast. For, for a, an aeroplane that size, it is scorchingly fast. It might not be, um, you know, not to 60 that the F-16 has got because that's, that's just otherworldly when it comes to uh, adding energy. We had a problem with top end speed in the in the Hornet. It, it'd go through the Mac, but it struggled to get above 1.2, 1.3. Um, I once did a a one v one. Sorry, I ended up one v one intercepts uh, with a with an F fifteen on an exercise, and um, the aspect vector that I mentioned last time on the radar. If the aeroplane was going faster, the aspect vector would be longer. Uh, so it, it gave you a visual representation that, like that. So when um, came in against an F-15 and the aspect there, it was like that long. It was like down to the bottom of the radar. I just thought, oh, he's, he's obviously jamming me or there's, there's some drive. No, he was doing Mach 2. <laughs> uh, and, and we merged at Mach 2. Um, oh, with him doing Mach 2, I was just through the Mach. And, uh, and it was like, a, like that. I was, I was dead from 30 seconds ago because I thought, I, I looked at this thing and I just thought, that's a spoof. That's not a proper target. Well, it was. It was doing Mac two, and it, it shot five bloody Amrams at me, you know. And uh, and so Adam sticking out of uh, every bit of me, uh, my face. So that that was uh, that was spectacular. It, it it was it was extremely fast uh, as well. And hmm. um, it's just that, uh, and it's and it's extremely maneuverable. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a big slab of metal, but the thing that they what they can do with it is unbelievable. They just couldn't do it as well as a Hornet, uh, hmm. as far as maneuverability uh, goes. But yeah, I'd love to have had a go. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question last time. I didn't ask it, but you you, you mentioned Amram again, um, and it's a curiosity, so it doesn't. We don't have to dwell on the answer. But one thing that I get from talking to RAF guys who've flown on, on exchange with, um, principally the F fifteen community, is that they they the RAF they get, they get read into everything. But they're not allowed to attend the debriefing where they talk about the AMRAM shots. So they can't, you know, when, when it gets to the point where they, they debrief the AMRAM shots, they get asked to leave the room. Did they open up everything to you when you were there? Did, would you, could you do everything that they could do? Right. So when I first arrived, um, my predecessor took me into grand school on the RAG, introduced me, got me all signed up and said, look, when I went through the RAG, um, it took ages for my clearance to come through and I wasn't allowed to see most of the ground school. I'd like this not to happen for Tug. And the uh, uh, the woman who ran the civilian organization said, um, I will guarantee that they'll, they'll be clean, uh, cleared. So I started the RAG and went in and in the uh, ground school, which is all self-paced learning, which I didn't particularly enjoy, I'm, I'm free to see everything. So I had a bit of a look at the radar to start with. Didn't understand any of it, bit of the weapons. and then knuckled down into the hydraulics, the electrics, the engines, and all that kind of stuff. Went in a couple of weeks later um, just to do normal stuff and then just thought, while I'm having my lunch, I'll, I'll go back into the radar stuff. No, wasn't allowed in there, secret, no forum. So went to see the lady who ran it and said, do you remember when you guaranteed that I was allowed to, well, it, it, I'm blocked out of it. And she said, yeah, we're working on it. Uh, you haven't got any clearance. I said, but I had clearance two weeks ago because I've already had a look at it. You shouldn't have seen that. Well, I did, you know. And by the way, I've been signing the weapons manuals out of the cabinet. Uh, so it all went all went a bit um, uh, wrong with that. And then for the rest of the RAG, I didn't have any clearance at all. Really? Um, I was going into radar trainers. In the end, I, I, I had a bit of um, uh, attitude about it. There was one 
ground school instructor. He'd been an F4 backseater and then become a Hornet pilot. And uh, he was he was chippy at best, you know, a bit brusque. Anyway, at the start of every briefing, they'd ask you these questions, technical questions about the radar and the weapons. And uh, so he asked me this question about the radar. I went, oh, I don't know. What? I, I don't know, mate. And he went, well, what about such? No, I don't know that either. And he gave me a bollocking, and I was just ready for it. And I went, yeah, the reason I don't know anything is because you won't fucking let me look at any and blah, 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 blah. And he said, what do you mean you're not allowed to look at it? You're doing a radar trainer. I said, tell me about it. And uh, and then he went, right, I'll sort this. Well, you're going to get me access? No, he said, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know just between you and me. And that was it. And I was almost like a pet project for him. He took me into the trainer, and from scratch, he taught me the radar and the uh, and the weapons. And uh, I think it. And then all of the sim instructors did the same thing for me. And I, I owe all of my weapons knowledge and radar knowledge to those guys. They were brilliant with me. Um, and then I got to the squad. I, I got I got clearance into the documents uh, and the ground school with one week to go to the end of the OCU. So I'd done nearly all of my flying. I just went back into ground school to do one thing that I needed for the last trip. And and this this lady walked in and with a big smile on her face, you know, I've got your clearance. Uh, uh, so I said, that's brilliant. I've finished the, I finished the rag next week. Uh, and she went, oh, I guess you mean thank you, uh, uh, Sharon, you know, for uh, uh, doing this. And I said, thank you, Sharon. And all the time in my lap was the secret weapons manual that I signed <laughs> out of the cabinet. Uh, from somebody else who didn't know I wasn't cleared. And it was just, oh, God, madness. And then I went to 121, and the boss and the exo went, um, uh, right, is the you know, you're just a pilot on the squadron as, as far as we're concerned. You're a Marine now, so you can see anything you want. So we saw absolutely everything. I didn't look at the secret documents every day. You don't need to. Hmm. But if you're gearing up for a trip, for me, do you remember I, talk, I talked about the Z diagrams yeah. for bombing? This is really critical stuff, you know, because I'm hurling myself at the ground. Well, all of those uh, Z diagrams are in the um, in the documents. So, yeah, that was that. And then we had halfway through my time on 121, we had a change of boss. Now, when the boss changes, he brings in his own EXO and his own OPSO as well. And we work directly for the OPSO. So those people are cleared out with the boss. In comes the boss with a new EXO and a new OPSO. And they immediately stopped us looking at the documents because we didn't have clearance. Really? And we've been looking at them for, you know, the the other exchange guys have been looking at them for two years. And the Australian, they had AMRAM, you know, so, and and it was just, it was just mad. When I got to the reserves, um, I I went to see the boss straight away and said, look, Stu, I've, I've been blocked from seeing secret documents, you know, what's your policy? And he went, um, well, Tug, given that you work in ops and uh, you're the one that has to sign out the secret documents to everybody else, <laughs> so you have the combination to the blister and the key, I think you're probably clear to see him. Uh, in, and he was great uh, like that, you know. <laughs> one, one other question I had around something you've mentioned a couple of times, well, once or twice in this interview and, and a couple of times previously was – the the numbers thing so you talked about the yardstick hornet last time around um yeah. you talked about the f-15 guy saying well, what was your what was your energy package what was your how fast were you and you know your response to that and you explained your your um sort of rationale behind that 
last time round, uh, not being bound by the numbers. So the the question I was wanting to ask was whether when you got to the reserve squadron and now presumably you're flying with more sort of crusty old aviators, people as you've described who've got 2,000 hours and you know they really know the aeroplane inside out. Were they still the same? Did they still hold on to those um, sort of number-based um, analyses around what they were going to do or what they had done? Or were they more like you and or the RAF's way of doing things, which is about sort of seat of your pants type stuff? It was much more flexible with the um, with the guys that had been there for uh, uh, for a while and the guys that had flown Phantom uh, before as well. And there were some A6 uh, guys and A4 guys as, as well. Those... Uh, I generally thought, as a general rule, those that had flown stuff before the Wonder Jet um, had a bit more of a uh, look out the window and fight what we see, and a bit of cheating, you know, all of that, uh, all of that fighter pilot kind of what do they call it? Chutzpah, is it that uh, that uh, that you would use that that word? Um, the Top Gun instructor guys who came in, um, they did everything. You know, they were able to look out of the window. I, I say look out of the window. That sounds really patronising, doesn't it? They were able to fight what they saw. They were able to manipulate a fight um, based on their knowledge of uh, what the F-15 or the F-16 or the F-5 could do or the MiG-29 or, or whatever it is they were going to go against. Mm. But they also had that undeniable, immense knowledge of energy management uh, diagrams and where they, uh, it's like telemetry on a Formula One car. Mm. You know, um, the, there are people that can look at those telemetry um, screens and instantly say where one driver is better than uh, than another in a particular corner. Um, that's what energy management diagrams are supposed to do. You're supposed to match it up against what you think the MiG-29 energy management diagram would be um, and and find the hole where you are, uh, in much more advantage than uh, than they would be from a pure physics uh, point of view. Now those Top Gun instructors, they, they do it every day of their lives. Um, they they and they're very very professional people. So they dedicate themselves into into that. Um, whereas I, I was never really that uh, that kind of guy. Academically, I wasn't um, I wasn't the uh, strongest. Yeah, I'm a smart guy. I've, I'm very good at mental arithmetic. Um, but mental arithmetic is a um, is a practical use of of uh, a skill that uh, directly relates to something that you can do in the uh, in the cockpit. Studying an energy management diagram and picking it all out and and what it just it just wasn't uh, uh, wasn't for me. So I think that I think that's why I found the reserves it was such a good fit for me. Um, it wasn't quite as professional as it as it could have been. Um, so I had to compromise there, but it was, oh my God, it was the most fun I've, I've ever had in my aviation life. That's 16 months. If I could, if I could freeze time and capture a moment, it would be that, that time on that, uh, on that squadron. But there were people who were massively much more professional than me as well. So I was probably, if we had a range of professionalism, uh, for a fighter pilot, I was probably in the top third. Um, which is not a bad place, uh, not a bad place to uh, to be, I think. 
Can we talk a little about, I, I want to get back to the human interest stories, and I know that's what you're passionate about, less less about going down, down rabbit rabbit warrens and, and talking technical stuff, but but just for the sense of balance, because some people are, some of the audience and me personally are interested in that kind of stuff. Can we just talk a little bit about the radar? So you said yeah. you were working the APG-73 when you were flying the D model, then you went to the APG-65 when you went to the A models, those old A models in the reserve yeah. unit. What was the difference between those two radars? What were the what were the practical differences? What did you see that was different between them? So bottom line with the 65 was, the 65s we had in the in the A, I think it was 65, yeah, um, we had no twist set because mm. uh, twist was there for AMRAP. So on the, um, on the Hornet D, um, and like I said, I think it was APG 73. It might have been an enhanced 65 or, or whatever it was. The difference between the two aeroplanes was we had a, a track wall scan set in the, um, uh, in the D model specifically for tracking and uh, shooting AMRAM. Well, we didn't have AMRAM in the A model. We had uh, Sparrow, AIM-7. So we had a uh, probably what I would call a bog-standard Hornet uh, radar set. Now, that doesn't mean to say it's it's like raw picture, like um, like it would be in a Phantom. Um, you would um, we had a function called Range While Search (RWS), and in the uh, D model we had TWS for uh, uh, for Track While Search. Range While Search pretty much gave me everything I got from Twiz anyway that I wanted. So normally in an old style radar. You get a blip and you have to watch the blip and do a bit of blip track analysis. And over five miles, it's drifted that much. Therefore, back blotting off the compass, that's roughly what heading uh, it is. Um, in range while search, you you could um, you could select that, uh, whichever one it was. Uh, you might have 10 targets up there. Select whichever one it was with the cursor. And at the bottom of the radar, it'll give you its heading, its altitude, and its speed. So you could, you've got all of that information without having to lock somebody up. Hmm. Um, whereas in the old days, we'd have to lock somebody up to get uh, all of that, uh, all of that information. So the range while search set, I, I pretty much lived in range while search, um, gave me everything that I needed to build situational awareness. I could uh, work out uh, there was a raid, a raid function, so you could um, uh, highlight. You knew there was three or four of them there. You'd highlight it, hit the raid button, and it would do a, a an expanded picture of that um, of that area. And then you could pick out what the formation looked like. Now the formation will look slightly different from the real world on a, a radar B scope because we we spoke about a B scope last time. A radar looks like that, but when you get down to the bottom here, it's difficult to pick out what's going on. So we um, put it out into a square scope like that. That means that the whole of the bottom of the scope is is me, not mm. just the bit in the middle, but the whole of the bottom. So if somebody's thirty right on your radar, um, and they're on collision, they won't come down the scope like that. They come straight down the scope, and there's a bit of mental knowledge needed to know how a B scope works. So um, why was I telling you that? So so that's. So long as you know that, and you know that when you press raid, they look like that, you can skew it in your mind and picture that that is a four ship set up in card formation. So two at the front, two at the back. But it might not quite look like that on the radar scope. 
But that's using what the radar gives you, plus your knowledge of how that B-scope works to build a picture in your mind. And funny old thing, when you merge with those people, wow, that's exactly what they look like in that formation. Um, we need to know the formation such that we can sort which one we're going to shoot, depending on our formation as we go into this intercept, because we don't want to shoot the same person. Uh, so that's called sorting. And you do that by using the, the radar, you either sort in range or azimuth or, or, or altitude. And that's all to do with your SOPs and your plan that you come out with beforehand. In, um, so that's what I was doing in the A model. I was using range mile search. And then when I came to sort, who am I going to shoot? I now have to lock them up. I lose um, SA on everybody else now because I'm single target track um, to support that sparrow. In the D model, we use the twist set because the twist, uh, oh, I'm probably going to bullshit here, probably had uh, better processing, quicker processing to support AMRAP. Um, so to support those shots, whereas range while search probably didn't have uh, uh, good enough, uh, quick enough processing to support multiple AMRAMs in flight. Probably bullshit. I'm sure a QI will uh, write in and put me right on the, on that, um, and then we'll ignore him. Um, so then the difference being that I'm now in my Hornet D, I'm king of the world because I can track four targets with enough processing update speed to launch four AMRAPs. So I can shoot against four targets simultaneously, which I can't do when I'm uh, in my F-18A shooting Sparrow. That's the main difference. So when I say uh, in an F-18A, if I go against um, probably even a MiG-29, um, I'm probably going to have to do a manoeuvre pre-merge to defeat that initial AA-10 shot because that was a bigger stick than Sparrow. It's probably not bigger than AMRAM. So in AMRAM, I don't need to do a pre-merge manoeuvre hmm. uh, for deception or anything like that. Uh, the phrase was, we stroll down Main Street, hmm. all right, and we fire off AMRAMs and we'll pick off what, whatever the AMRAMs don't, uh, uh, don't take out in the first presentation. That, that's the fundamental difference, I think. So, so Tucker, it's not a stupid question. Um, would you have actually used that sort of multi-shot capability for four AMRAMs in flight at one time, or was that, you know, was that a sort of best-case scenario against an unaware bandit-type capability? But in reality, you probably would have gone to a single-target track. How, how, how did it? Were you expecting to employ it in reality? Yeah. So your ideal is uh, we we shoot out at range fire off these things and they're stupid enough to walk into all of them and uh, we can all turn around and go home we'll never get closer than x number of miles from them never close enough for them to be a threat uh, to us with their weapons that's your absolute ideal scenario that's pretty much what a wall of f-15s is uh, is looking to achieve and that's what we would look to achieve in the uh, in the f-18d so we're smart enough to know that that's probably not going to happen because just as in my f-18a i will do a uh, pre-merge deception maneuver, pre-shot deception maneuver. Um, they're going to do the the same thing. But I, I don't think I'm telling any secrets. But if you fire an AMRAM at max range, it doesn't take a lot of maneuvering from a bandit to defeat that uh, kinetically. It just won't have the legs to uh, to get there. 
um, so we don't shoot at max range. We might have a scenario where we do take a shot at max range, probably just to move people, you know, to influence them. Um, or we might even lock them up at match range such that they go, holy shit, you know, and then they do move. And then now we're starting, we, we get a better radar picture and we can sort them. There's all sorts of little yeah. plays and tactics involved. What we're probably going to do is take a heart of the envelope shot, and, th and that's what it's called, where certainly with an AMRAM, if you take a heart of, an em of the envelope shot, shot it's going to come off the rail pretty much active straight away. So its own radar is doing its thing. Uh, we call it pitbull is the um, call, the code word when it goes active. Um, and there's different levels of active, but uh, but if it if it comes off the rail pitbull, that bandit has to turn itself inside out and probably teleport. Uh, <laughs> a mile to the right in order to defeat that AMRAM because that's how good uh, that's how good it is. Hmm. You'd need to be flying an F eighteen that could pirouette and turn itself inside out uh, to defeat um, uh, an active off the rail shot uh, like that. So that's probably further in than heart of the envelope. So heart of the envelope would be the highest uh, highest percentage shot, but still maintaining a little bit of separation, sort of thing. That's that's how you employ. Or, or how we employed AMRAM in those days. So you generally, the the biggest threat on the radar would be the uh, launch and steering target, the LNS. Um, then they they kind of stack up in in order of, of threat, but the LNS target would be under the trigger. So what you would do is, uh, if you're firing those, uh, shooting against those four, you'd shoot and then step. There was a step uh, button on the throttles, uh, sorry, uh, with the cursor, you'd step with the cursor. That would go to the next threat, shoot, step, shoot, step, shoot. And that would be your ideal. And that's that's what I look at it with uh, Typhoon as, as, as well, um, that shoot, step, shoot, step, shoot uh, thing. Um, that, that would be the, the ideal. In reality, um, it's probably not going to work uh, like that unless you have briefed your red air to be as dumb as uh, as that, and sometimes we would do that just so that people could practice the weaponeering in the ideal uh, scenario. But mostly, it'd be all a, bit, a little bit more mixed up than uh, than that. Bottom line is, I'd rather have an AMRAM uh, than I would an AIM seven. You know, it was uh, it was the other thing with AMRAM is it was bloody brilliant in uh, in close range its min range was that like here uh you know better than a uh, than a an aim 9 that i found um and and its maneuverability was uh, was shit hot as uh, as well um everybody thinks of amram as being this long range yeah. stick it, it was awesome in uh close in air combat as well uh, hopefully i'm not asking too 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 granular a question and um we can just move on if if you feel that we are and 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 after this let's move on back to the sort of the the more sort of human interest side of things but yeah, yeah. but but the, the the obvious question i have having listened to that and and again having talked to you know if, uh, other f15 and f16 guys around you know sort of let's say cold war type tactics where you're you're going single target track you've got a you've got a four ship of red air in front of you you do your sort each person takes someone you take your aim seven shot and then you know you you, you have to then sanitize the airspace and rebuild your essay because you've gone into yeah. that single target track mode 
So you've got four, you can shoot down, well, you can shoot at, let's say, four red air or four four uh, bandits um, in your F-18. You're part of a four ship. Let's say there aren't 16 bandits in front of you. So you've got a, a, an easy sort of four. Each of you takes yeah. four, 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 four bandits. Let's say you've got eight. How do you make sure you're not wasting AMRAMs? How do you make sure that you're not all of you firing at all the same targets and now you've wasted all your AMRAMs? So there's a uh, there's a brief beforehand, uh, at which point we'll do uh, tactics. We'll do tactics. Uh, we'll build a timeline uh, of um, activity based on the threat that we see, based on the altitude that they're going to be at. Um, we build a time, and we'll have the timeline written on our knee pad, and we'll adjust it for altitude. So if it's ultra high altitude, we'll add I don't know two miles to each uh, each figure of of what we're going to do. Um, when it comes to sorting, we'll we'll sort um, verbally, you know. So then, well, if it's just there's two of us and there's two uh, bandits, we know that we're going to sort side side or or lead trail. Um, and if there's two of us and two of them, we know that you know the uh, the leader's not going to go for the glory uh, uh, status of shooting both of them, even though we could quite easily with Amram. We're, we're going to uh, take one uh, take one each. So build that up then to four aeroplanes, eight aeroplanes. Um, if it's more complicated than it, than it needs to be, we'll, we'll sort verbally, you know, with, uh, with that, but always making sure that we're not shooting at the same, uh, at the same person. Um, the, the thing with AMRAM is, is like I said, it had a, it had a visual mode as well. You, you, if you had visual AMRAM uh, mode selected, got a big um, circle in the HUD that actually fills the HUD. Fly somebody into that circle. You can shoot Amram with no lock and no radar at all, and it it just opens up its own radar. Mm. And this is why we call it the air shark. And it just goes, "That looks good. I'll I'll take that." That comes with its own issues as uh, as well. That's why we don't all go in shooting bloody visual Amrams because they'll there's a chance that they might go for the same for the same one. So I I fire a visual Amram. Number two does. They might go for the same uh, for the same target. If you find that shooting them about the same time, they'll they'll arrive at the same time. But it's not like one explodes and a, a second later the other one then starts uh, arbitrarily uh, looping around that target looking for the next thing. They're they're, they're one direction uh, type um, uh, weapons. So uh, what was I going to say with uh, uh, with that? So then it, it's it's down to the discipline of the formation. We're back to the F fifteen thing here. Their discipline in shooting Amram BVR uh, and their discipline on the radar and sorting was was spectacular. But we were we were good in the uh, in the F eighteen, but we just went as uh, as anal as them uh, doing that. That'll all be sorted out in the brief. We'll have some SOPs for sorting in the air and for shooting. But if it all goes to ratchet and they're and they're starting manoeuvring, you know, but wildly. Then we'll we'll just do it over the radio. Okay, t- tell us a bit more about cheating. I don't know if we were recording when we talked about this yesterday, not not yesterday, the day before when we when we last spoke, or for the audience in part one. But you talked about your the boss at um, uh, did you call them the Smokes? Is that was that the the name of yeah the, yeah one thirty four yeah the, the boss yeah. of the Smokes? Um, you know he had his own little ways of cheating. Um, with regards to the um the fins of the practice bombs 
Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't so know if that I, was. I don't know if we were taping, but tell the story anyway, and I'll cut it out. Well, if, if, if out. we weren't, then um, he was uh, he was a very very well known and well liked um, marine uh, aviator uh, and very capable as well. So even as an old guy, he was the boss of our reserve unit. He was the boss of the RAG when I first started, and then he he went across to Beaufort on the east coast, and then came back and and he'd left the Marine Corps, and he was he was the uh, reserve boss of the reserve unit of the reserve group. So um, and everybody loved uh, loved this guy, um, but um, he he still had that 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 ounce of mischief in him that uh, that I, I always love with with proper fighter aircrew. Uh, we've all got a bit of the anarchist uh, in us, I, I think, and I, I love that. Um, but even at his advanced stage of flying, it still meant a lot to him. So we'd uh, we'd, we'd drop these practice bombs. They were called um, uh, Blue Death. Uh, so they were they were uh, what uh, two feet long, twenty six pound practice bombs, and looked like proper bombs. They might as well have written bomb on the side of it, you know, because it, it looked uh, it looked really. Uh, like a little, uh, like a little bob with a long, fi- uh, a long tail, and four fins on the back. He would um, just go in academic practice bombing at the range. He'd walk out half an hour before, after the bombs were loaded, and with a pair of you know strong pliers, he'd bend the fins on his opponent's bombs, just to give him that little bit of edge, so that he always got the best, uh, the best bomb at, at the range. I love that. I love that he would, first off, that he can even think that, but secondly, that he would take the effort to do that. You know, when, when you know, you've got some uh, academic guys looking at an, uh, an EM diagram or a Z diagram, see how he can get the very best out of this bomb ballistically and stuff, and he's just there with a pair of pliers bending the shit on the, uh, uh, on the ends of them. And that, and again, okay, uh, people would say, well, you know, that's uh, – that's not real life. You're, you're damn right it's not real. But practice bombing isn't bloody real. Yeah, you can practice techniques of your approach and your designation of the target and stuff. But the bottom line is everybody wants to know what the score is. Hmm. You know, nobody cares whether you uh, uh, fought your foreship into the uh, into the academic range and popped and hit all your hit all your speeds and your angles and your G and stuff like that. They want to know that after you've pickled the button, what is the range officer going to say? And if he says Delta Hotel, which is direct hit, okay, um, that that's what that's what everybody wants is a uh, is a DH. Um, if he says uh, eighty feet at twelve, which means you've lobbed the bomb eighty feet too far uh, over the target, you're just going to get shit in the debrief uh, with your scores. That's why I hate academic bombing. You're sweating buckets. You're trying to get everything accurate, you know, and then uh, and then the, the like I said, the range officer basically tells you you've spread them around like a mad dog shitting, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just oh my god, you know, why do I do this? And he, even at his advanced experience, it still means so much to him. He's willing to bloody cheat and uh, and bend the wings on bombs. I love that. I just love that. That's that's proper character. You said earlier that um, when you got to the F3 after your Hornet tour and, and at various points you were sort of more reliant on experience than maybe sort of sitting down and studying and, and doing all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And you've just said that nobody cares about the the numbers in terms of airspeeds, altitudes, pull-up angles, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. I'm curious to know whether or not your 
your performance as an experienced aviator inadvertently, so not by design, but just because you could do it, actually matched those academic figures. So, so if you went to the range and you did score a direct hit, would you be able to, and you'd done that through instinct and using the symbology and just, just, you'd just done it because you'd done it. You've been flying fighters for a long time. When you went back and looked at your tapes, did, did, did the numbers match up? Was it the, was it the case that there's only one way to do it? And that's the Z diagram. And either you do it through study or you do it through instinct, or actually there are multiple ways to, to skin the cat and you just did it your way. I think there's probably multiple ways to do it. I, I wouldn't say my way was uh, was particularly uh, good. So when I went to the F3, all I did as far as weaponeering went was one strafe trip and one uh, or maybe two air-to-air gunnery trips. Um, didn't fire a missile and no bombs, of course. Remember back at Valley, uh, of course, I was teaching um, air-to-ground. I wasn't teaching air-to-ground weaponry. That was the... Uh, weapons instructors that did that but i had to go to the range and drop bombs and and strafe and um tell you the truth um it was probably more to do with the fact that when we do bombing in in the uk we do it at at, at ranges and it's and it's we do academic patterns like the marines do at, at the with practice bombing um but it's like i said we suck all the joy out of it you know it's just it's just it's it's like flying a circuit but at high speed and with uh, and with high g and if you don't hit the numbers, those practice bombs don't go where you want them to go. Uh, we use a three kg bomb, or used to back here in the in the UK, whereas they had these twenty six pound uh, bombs. When you drop a big bomb, it pretty much goes where you put the designation because of ballistics and and stuff like that. I'd, I'd suppose. So I enjoyed the big bomb bombing. Uh, it's just the academic stuff, uh, uh, not. The only time I did strafe in the Tornado F3 at a strafe um, kind of uh, role, um, and this, this is quite interesting. You do the human aspect of things, uh, Steve. Going way back to when I was a student, there was a Harrier instructor. He was a new instructor on tech weapons. He would go out to the range. He'd drop four Delta hotels, and he would strafe 50 rounds. He'd probably get. 35 hits every time but he wasn't using any technique he was using seaman's eye they called it he just had his eye in he just knew what he was doing and he could react to changes um on the day uh on each run he just he just had an eye for it whereas i i didn't have that maybe i had a an eye for building a picture of a 3d uh, intersect. Maybe that was where my my skill was. We all were to our skills. So I go up to um, I join the Eleven Squadron at Leeming on the Tornado F three, and I have to uh, do strafe. So um, bear in mind, remember I told you the story. The first time I did strafe in the Hornet, I did it solo on the Rag. I had five hundred and seventy eight rounds and an electrically spun six barrel Gatling gun. And when I pulled the trigger, went Vroom! like that. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. So I'm now going to do my strafe dual check. I have to fly with the QY pilot in the back because they don't trust me to do it solo first time. Well, okay, fair enough. We launch out of Leeming in shit weather to go to Tain Range in Scotland. We're already short of gas as soon as we launch. And uh, bearing in mind, the last time I strafed, I had 578 rounds. I've got 12, all right, in this uh, in this tornado. And it doesn't have a Gatling gun, 
It's got a 27 millimeter cannon. A cannon sounds pretty cool, yeah, uh, but it's like a it's like a breech shotgun style cannon. Uh, sounds pretty cool though, so um, I'm willing to give it a go. We go up to the range. You can barely see the target because the weather's so bad. And the guy in the back, he was an old friend of mine, a QI pilot, had to demonstrate the first run for me. So do the academic pattern. And as we roll in on the on the target, the, the clock face start to unwind as the range gets in there. And we have to go firing, firing now uh, in the cockpit. Whereas in the range, you just bloody pull the trigger and host uh, stuff off. And instead of pulling the trigger in the cockpit, he goes firing, firing now. And he says that over the intercom and then recovers the aeroplane because he wants to save all 12 bullets for me, you know. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, that's right. So right, you have control tug. Off I go. And I come in on the first run, firing, firing now. The last time I pulled the trigger, I heard Vroom! like that. I pulled the trigger in the tornado F3 and I heard this. As one round went down range and the second one jammed in the breach. Okay. <laughs> And I just thought, I, I almost deliberately flew us into the target and killed us because I just thought my, my life is over. You know, look at the look at the fall from grace that I've had uh, with my beautiful Gatling gun uh, down to uh, uh, down to this here. I, I, God, I've never been more depressed doing weaponeering than uh, than in that moment right there. I think so. Yeah, it swings and roundabouts uh, uh, sort of thing. Um, I, th- I, th- I don't think that actually asked answered any question that you asked, Steve. But uh, uh, I just wanted to get that off my chest. It made me laugh, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about dropping bombs? Then you said last time we spoke that you dropped a lot of bombs. You shot a couple of aim nines. Um, what was that experience like? I mean, is is there a big? You just said that you like when you you like dropping big big bombs, but dropping big big bombs or real bombs does it does it feel a lot different? Is it is it different? It, yeah, it, it, I mean, it really. It really does. So we, um, in that time, if you remember, if you remember, sort of uh, mid to late nineties, uh, we weren't really um, at war as, as such. There's the uh, Gulf War thing that uh, that had been and gone. But most um, most of my colleagues who had gone to ground attack squadrons in in those days, in Cold War days, they would get to drop pretty much one bomb per tour. And and it was a big event, uh, a big event for them. Well, I I went off to the uh, states as a fighter uh, guy. I dropped more bloody bombs on the OCU on the rag than my colleagues had dropped um, in uh, three years on a uh, on a frontline tour. Of course, everything changes when when we go to war, and they're they're dropping all the time. So I felt actually quite uh, quite privileged to uh, to get all this ironwork uh, uh, to drop. And then we had this um we had this thing, each squadron would get an allocation of um of weapons every year. And some of them would be, you know, uh, the special weapons I mentioned last time, like walleye and rock eye and uh and things like that. But mostly it was uh it was gun bombs. But but proper proper explosives, not not just um not just uh, cement. So um so I felt I felt quite privileged to do it. So on the uh reserve unit. We got to the end of the financial year or towards the end of it, and we handed back. We had to hand back a load of weapons because we didn't we didn't have the people to drop them. Uh, we thought we just we just hadn't managed to get through our allocation, and then uh, the Marine Corps sent them back to us and said, "You, know, you drop them because it'll it costs a fortune to decommit decommission them." We did three weeks uh, surge ops of just dropping bombs every day 
I was loaded up with uh, four £1,000ers, eight £1,000ers. Really? Uh, I think I flew one trip with four £2,000 bombs. Holy moly. Um, and you could feel it as you got airborne. You know, the, the aeroplane just didn't want to go, and then it'd get a bit of momentum, and it'd go, and you bring the gear up, and 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 it was okay. You know, it, it was a bit draggy, but um, but it still flew like a hornet. And then um, you'd uh, we'd do a range of things. We'd do maybe some level attacks, but mostly we'd do low level ingress and pop, um, and then um, we'd pop in dry power. We'd set up a fifteen degree dive. Or maybe a thirty-degree dive if we did a long uh, pop. If we did, we'd go full burner and do a high pop to set up a forty-five-degree dive, and that's generally how we'd uh, how we'd employ these things. And when you push the pickle button, because we just needed to get them off the um, uh, off the aeroplane, we weren't doing one bomb per uh, per run and then setting up a racetrack and doing another run. We were one pass or less is what we were, were we were doing. And so you'd, you'd dive down, you'd hit the pickle button, and whatever you'd set up in the – there was a weapons page, stores page. You could set up, um, you know, how long the stick was going to be, the delay between each bomb going off, whether they went off in pairs or individuals. And you could set all of that stuff, and that would all be worked out in the tactics beforehand with the Z diagrams. But um, I, I quite often I'd, I'd pickle off four 1,000-pounders in one – Pass. Wow. And uh, and you press the pickle button, and you hear this as as they go off in the in the timing. Or if you put two lots of two off, you'd hear like that. And that's the explosive bolts in the um uh, in the rails that that are forcing these these things off. And then you recover um at four G. And as soon as the bombs are off, my God, you're in you're in the slick sports car again, and and its performance is is through the roof again. And it's almost like the the F eighteen saying to you, right, thank God we got rid of that. Let's party now, you know. Let's be who we uh, who we are. It's like taking your coat off at the dance, you know. And all of a sudden we we can dance again, and and you'd recover. And then, did I say this last time? They always say, don't watch your own fall of shot, you know, because you'll end up overbanking and falling into the ground. That's absolute horseshit. Okay, <laughs> you always drop a wing to watch these things go off. And I, I dropped on a, uh, it was a fake airfield uh, out in um, the R2507 Chocolate Mountain Range. And um, they had aircraft hulks on the um, on the runway as if they were taking off and in dispersal. And I I looked down to, and I, I figured I was going to see the aircraft get thrown into the sky. You don't. All you see is there's nothing. And then there is I mean, a huge, huge blast of um, shit and corruption, you know, the shrapnel and the it, – it's black smoke, but it's it's intertwined with orange and yellow and red flame. They are spectacular uh, when you go – I can't even imagine what it would be like to be on the ground close mm. to, to something like that. And imagine four of them going off at the at the same time. Or four two thousand pounders, which are you know just mad size of uh, of bomb, all going off uh, like that, and and it it did it. it. It used to take my breath away to uh, to watch it and thinking bloody hell, I've caused that. And then the flip side of it is that you, when you do close air support, we were dropping live, very close to 
Marines uh, on the on the ground. I think the closest I'd ever had people dropping was 500 meters. But but the the frank pattern for a, a thousand pounder is bloody enormous. It goes up to nearly 3,000 feet and spreads out by uh, you know God knows how many uh, how many feet as well. So there's pressure on to to get it in the right place. Like I said, the big bombs actually go where you've told them to go mostly. Even the dumb ones without uh, laser heads or any anything like that. So I did. A, I did. A, I got. I got a bit of a buzz from it. By the end of the second week, where uh, it got a bit samey, uh, you can't imagine that, can you? But no. I've got eight five hundred pounders. All right. Okay. Well, they're not going to be as spectacular as the two thousand pounders that I uh, dropped this morning. They still went off with a bang, you know, as you hear them go off. But um, but yeah, it, it just it just got. I almost got desensitized to um, uh, to dropping them. I think because we were dropping so much, two hundred thousand pounds of bombs, a uh, uh, weight of bombs yeah. in two or three weeks. I wow. think it was that we had to. Wow. We were just lobbing them off like like you read about at arbitrary pieces of desert. You know, there was there wasn't by the end of it. There wasn't a whole lot of training value out of this. We just needed to get rid of the bloody things. Did you did you get anything out of that then? I mean, was there any validation of the the models, the ballistic models in the in the the weapons computer? Was there did, did anything come out of it, or was it literally just that? Yeah, you know, just get get rid of them. That two or three weeks, that was just a get rid wow. uh, sort of thing. Um, back on one twenty one, of course, we'd uh, we'd debrief properly with the. Um, the designation, you know, how good we were with the designation, hmm. how level the wings were as the um, as the aircraft came through the release line, and what G did you have, what speed did you have, and hmm. and, and we did. I, I make it sound like um, you know we just blatted uh, blatted things off, but uh, there was proper uh, debriefing with uh, with all of that because the bottom line is uh, a lot of the guys on one twenty one and on the reserve unit. They'd all been in Gulf War One, and they'd done it for real, you know. And they'd taken out individual tanks, you know, Iraqi tanks and uh, uh, individual Iraqi aeroplanes on the ground, individual hazes. They'd uh, they'd uh, penetrated with bunker busters and uh, and stuff. And they'd done it for uh, they'd done it for real. Mm-hmm. So it was serious uh, stuff. But that two or three weeks, that was just you know, God, we need to get rid of these uh, get rid of these things. Don't get me wrong; it was a lot of fun. It was absolutely a, a lot of fun. Um, did we get anything productive out of it? Probably not. Um, if you'd not bombed for a while, it was good to get current again uh, bombing. Uh, in fact, I, I say there, there was one. Um, there was one foreship that I did that actually it brought it home that actually we're not just lobbing things at the ground. This is serious stuff. So I was number four of a foreship, and we went off and attacked. Um, uh, the, one of the airfields uh, that was there and just for n- no tactical reason whatsoever the guy briefed up they, w- they were into uh, locking runways on on this airfield we'll each take a threshold each so he was going to take the threshold at that end number two would take the next one number three and then number four rather than just bomb the runway we'll, we'll bomb the thresholds and, and see see how accurate we can be uh, I was number four. My element lead was a reservist who worked in the group. So he wasn't really a reservist full-time pilot, if you see what I mean. Hmm. He had jobs to do in the group, and then he came to us to uh, to get current and, and fly as much as he could. Nice guy. 
He was an ex A4 um, uh, pilot. So um, I was on his wing, and we, we were separated out so that we all uh, bond sort of individually, but but as a four-ship. So the one and two went in first, and they bombed, and then um, we went in a number of seconds afterwards. Bearing in mind now, the plumes from one and two's bombs are are getting to their apex of uh, 3,000 feet or so, because we were dropping 1,000 pounds. I dropped 4,000 pounders, 1,000 pounders in one run. Um, as I as we went down to drop, the one and two were uh, pulled out and were over the top of the target area, watching us uh, basically. One dropped, and then I, I was sorting my designation out. Didn't sorry, number three dropped. I didn't really see what number three was doing. I just knew I was conflicted from him. Uh, I dropped, and all I heard was three pull up uh, like that. And um, and the next thing was uh, was a mayday call, and um, he got target fixated. He popped his bombs off, and then he he kind of followed his bombs in uh, a bit. Um, I guess trying to see the uh, you, you know the explosion, but he'd gone below the min height on the Z diagram, mm. and because of the wind, you know the the that we were downwind from one and two's uh, bombs. He went through one's frag pattern, wow. and uh, yeah, and it just showed it. I kind of brought home when we saw the um, uh, Eagle Mayday uh, recovered, and uh, he got visual inspection. Holy shit! When we saw his jet on the ground afterwards, we 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 all supported him, sort of thing. We went back as a four ship, but then they 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 put the leader told number two and me to land. And then he watched him land, and then he landed on the other runway, uh, sort of thing. So it was quite well supported. But we all looked at, uh, at his jet afterwards. So it had uh, stripped the nose cone uh, of all of its paint, and there were pits in the nose cone. It had ripped off the front of all of the uh, the the launchers on the wingtips, and his bomb racks. It had ripped the front off them, and the leading edge of the wing. Uh, was uh, I think he'd lost a leading edge flap, and uh, and that was all pitted, and the front of his windscreen was uh, almost almost couldn't see through uh, wow. see through it. Wow! And it was a I suppose that was yeah. You know, we weren't getting anything out of the academics of dropping the bombs, but that brought it home that you know this is this is serious shit that we're doing here. Mm. Yeah, we're joking about just going off and lobbing these things off, but a guy almost lost his life uh, today. Um, had number one's frag pattern not been there, he might have just followed those bombs into the ground and recovered at such a point that he he would have followed those bombs into the ground because he was fixated. So that was a valuable uh, a valuable lesson that uh, that we all took away from from just basically just lobbing stuff at the ground, you know, with not thinking anything was going to come of it. And um, yeah, he, he could have lost his life with that. Did did that? Um, I think this is probably something we talked about in the in in your F four discussion or our F four episodes a, a year or two ago. Um, but but did that sort of sense of mortality or or sort of the fact that you you know you could at any day you know meet your maker? Did that creep in to your thoughts more and more the the more you flew and just I over think, your career yeah. generally? I think on the uh, I think on the Hornet. By this time, I had a uh, had a daughter, and my wife was uh, was pregnant. My youngest daughter was born in California 
in the uh, September of my last uh, last year of the of the tour. And so, whereas on the Hornet, I was a single guy, and uh, no, uh, not my own family. You know, I got parents, but uh, not my own family that I'm responsible for. Um, I didn't think about that that once. I didn't think we were going to get shot down by the Russians because I didn't rate them. I didn't think uh, that I was going to crash the aeroplane because I seemed to be uh, seemed to be competent. That that confidence grew when I was a flying instructor and a tactics instructor. <clears throat> and then when I got onto the uh, to the Hornet, I started off thinking I wasn't uh, good enough. Then I got good enough in my mind, and then I flew single seat and thought, "Oh God, I'm not good enough to fly single seat." And then I was good enough to fly single seat. And you go through this this kind of uh, progression. I think most uh, pilots go through that that kind of progression. But then it was like I had a little bit more to lose. You know, I had um, had a daughter and another one on the way. Had a little bit more to lose uh, uh, with this with this thing. I'd had a I'd had a very um, humbling experience in the Hawk, uh, where I almost killed myself uh, through my own stupidity when my wife was pregnant with my eldest daughter, and that was a huge reset in my uh, in my attitude uh, towards towards things like that. Um, when I was on the Hornets, um, I don't think there was anywhere. Uh, all right, I departed an aeroplane and. That we might have had to have ejected, you know, almost hit the Goodyear blimp uh, through my own stupidity, um, but I didn't. Uh, I don't think there was any point where I just thought, um, where I was walking for an aeroplane, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm I'm actually shitting myself here uh, uh, with this." I don't think there was any of that in particular. When when this guy flew through the uh, through the frag pattern, we did the usual thing of we debriefed it uh, properly. We were glad that he um, that he didn't uh come to uh to grief with it but i think all of us thought well he's a bit more part-time than the rest of us those kind of things will happen to people uh to people like that but uh did it curtail me doing even more stupid things than i maybe would have done in the hornet had i been single probably uh, but I, I can't put my uh can't put my finger on it like i said last time i told you uh, the story about how I almost hit the Goodyear blimp. Mm. So that was just uh, utter stupidity. So uh, perhaps it didn't have an effect on me uh, at all. It, you, you can only do these things looking back, I suppose, with uh, with a bit of uh, with a bit of hindsight. Um, but I've, I've never really, from an aeroplane point of view, I've never really faced my mortality. I, I, I don't think, Steve. Mm. Maybe if I had, uh, I. Um, might have given it up. Yeah, I, who knows? Uh, who knows with this stuff? You mentioned the scenario then uh, in your F four days going up against the Russians, and then of course you did the Fal- you did your Falklands tour, but you know your six week deployment to the Falklands. I suppose that's more accurate. You know, potentially yeah. fighting the Argentines and and so on and so forth. What was the threat you were training to them when you were uh, the with with the smokes? Were, were you were you going to go on the on the Pacific side of things? Was it the Chinese you were training to, or you? Because they, the east and west seaboards, isn't that how they split the Marines and the Navy? The, the guys on the west coast are going to go Pacific oriented, and then the guys on the east coast are Atlantic oriented. Is that? Am I talking shit? God, maybe I do. I have no idea. It sounds okay. extremely, uh, extremely plausible. Um, I, I didn't really get into that because of the. It's like I said, because of the status of forces agreement, we knew we weren't going to deploy. So um, certainly in 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 peacetime. Yes, uh, people do deploy on exchanges uh, now. I, I I know that, and they go bombing, and mm. uh, and 
and and go to war. Um, maybe if the balloon had gone up, um, it would have been. It, I'm, I'm absolutely dead sure it would have been different, and we would have uh, uh, we would have uh, deployed. But uh, yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe the West Coast did go uh, Pacific, and the East went uh, Atlantic. I don't really know. It's the truth. And when I was on uh, when I was on VMFA one thirty four, the smokes. I don't think we were working up for anything. Oh, I think really? we were just having having a blast uh, flying uh, uh, flying uh, Hornets. I know that a lot of the guys who had done the Gulf War, Gulf War One, we we were on deployment in uh, in Key West. Holy shit! I, I tell you what, I did so much on that uh, on that reserve unit. I saw Alaska, Key West. We went on deployment to Las Vegas. I, I mean, I I was living absolutely living the life. But we were having a beer in Key West. Uh, uh, one night, and um, the guys were telling a few uh, Gulf War uh, sort of tales, and one of them, he was a really, really he was my favourite uh, 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 reserve. Uh, there was just something about this uh, about this guy, and um, and he said, in all serious, he said, um, he said, I'd love to do the show again, Tug. And um, I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, he said it was, you, you know, for once I felt like I was doing what I'd been trained to do. And you know, in in inverted commas here, because uh, I don't want to upset um, you know uh, pacifists out there. But but the bottom line, not that any are going to watch this, I'm pretty sure. But I hope not. But the bottom line was, um, he said it was a lot of fun. You know, it was you know dropping bombs and seeing the results that not of killing people, but of taking something out of the game that uh, could hurt our people, you know. And they truly believed that they were saving the lives of uh, of Marines on the ground. And that is a beautiful, a beautiful thing. But he said, I'd love to have another go. And um and I said, well, yeah, but you know, it's all it's all a bit stable at the uh, at the moment. And and he said, um North Korea. He said, I'd like to have a go at them. And he said, and if not them, then the Chinese. And and I think that was that was what they truly believed. And Doctrinally, that was probably uh, even in the mid to late nineties. That's what the US uh, was gearing up for, yeah. um, because they, they were just trying to spot what the next uh, yeah. what the next big thing was going to be. So uh, I think that was uh, that was about the the size of it. I'm sure I'm sure frontline squadrons were a lot more clued into uh, to that. But you know, hey, hey, we were the reserves. It was manana. You know, oh, here we are in Key West again. <laughs> you know, it, it was that, yeah, yeah. That uh, that was some uh, that was some as uh, as well. We ostensibly went there for a gun shoot, so where to air guttering uh, and go? I mean, we could have done it over the bloody Pacific, but no, we'll we'll deploy all the way to the other coast and go to uh, to Key West. And um, normally, when you do a gun shoot, you know, the, an aeroplane is going to carry the flag. Hmm. And we we do a, a academic pattern around it, circuits, and we and we get in and we we shoot the uh, shoot the flag. And if it, if you're too too much angle off, all the bullets go off the back. And if you're too narrow, they're too shallow. There's a good chance you're going to shoot the uh, the poor sap down who's towing the flag. So it's all a little bit <laughs> like that. And um, anyway, we 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 go to shoot. Now, what they're supposed to do is paint the bullets so each aeroplane on the flag has its own colour. Um, so that when the flag comes back, you can um, you can pick out who's who's got the hits. Um, well, the Hornet gun uh, and the kit so accurate that we should be able to hit the stinking flag, you know. But anyway, we want to know what percentage we've got. So uh, as I walk for my first um, 
air-to-air gunnery trip in Key West, uh, the gunnery sergeant who's running the desk, I, I signed the airplane out and said, uh, I'll just check what, what color are my bullets, gunny? And he just had this smile on his face and he went, uh, well, like Lieutenant Wilson, he said, they're, uh, they're silver. Uh, and I said, yeah, no, what, what color are my heads painted? And he went, we haven't painted any of the bullets, uh, any of the rounds, sir. And I said, what? He said, well, we weren't asked to paint paint any rounds. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So there's, there's four Hornets going to shoot at this flag, 578 rounds each with one of the most um, accurate guns out there. So, so I walked thinking, uh, I think they're taking the piss. Oh, I've obviously got some colour. We go out, we shoot at this flag, and it comes back. And normally, the way the RF would do it, we'll do a debrief first. Uh, then the weapons instructor will get you in the film room and he'll do your film debrief, and that's miserable. Uh, and he'll basically predict that uh, you've got no shots whatsoever. Uh, and then the flag will come back, and everybody goes out and critiques the flag, and the QI will then try and justify why his debrief was 180 degrees out from the reality <laughs> uh, right there and basically say that you're massively lucky and that's how gun shoes normally go. So we got back. We didn't, we didn't even debrief the getting to the flag and back and, and the pattern. All right, that's fine. Uh, right, anybody want to look at the films? No, no, we'll, we'll have a look at the flag first, is what, uh, is what the boss said. Okay, so the flag comes back. We walk out. It is a tattered ruin of, uh, of a flag. We're never going to use this bloody thing again because it, I mean, it's, it's absolutely shot to shit. I'm surprised there was even anything left attached to the spreader bar. And he, and he walks around, the boss walks around it, all four, all four of us there. He walks around it, he goes, yeah, good shoot then, yeah? And everybody went, yeah, yeah, good shoot. And we walked off, and that was it. There was, there was no, shall we check the films? Uh, no, 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 it's all right. It's like we've, uh, like we've shot it. To, uh, being the aviator, I, I wasn't. I wanted to make sure I'd actually got some shots. So I got one of these ex-Top Gun guys. Can you please just look at my film because it looks like we're not not debriefing. And they said, "Yeah, it looks like you got some uh, got some good hits on it." And that was good enough for me. And then every gun shoot we did after that, it was almost like it was uh, it was a joke. We'd walk out, we'd walk around the flag, looking at it, and go, "Good shoot, yeah, 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 good shoot." And we'd all have a bit of a laugh and 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 go in. No debriefing whatsoever. Just shot the shit out of this thing and. Uh, patted ourselves on the back it, it was awesome absolutely awesome i loved it loved it did you did you you said i think you said you did a three aim nine shots and you told us the the story about the the guy flying in front and dropping the flare for you to shoot out yeah and yeah saying, don't yeah wait, wait wait till i'm clear before you shoot did you get any learning out of those shots were, were they more serious because they were they were you were firing missiles no, I, d- I don't think there was any major learning out of it. It was just to get them off the rails, and uh, it was two two aim nine. Um, I don't think there were mics. I think there were lemurs because they were they were getting uh, uh, life X. Okay. So we had we had to get these uh, these things off, and I shot um, we shot double as well. So um, two off the rails in one uh, in one shot, How uh, which was you just, uh, spe- you just you just select it in the uh, in the stop. Or maybe we sorry, maybe we did shoot and then shoot. Sorry, okay. uh, yeah, I think you could shoot two off the rails. Oh no, I might be getting into the rounds of bullshit now. I'll have to look in my uh, in my logbook uh, uh, with uh, with that. But so three aeroplanes, six missiles at the same flare. Wow. So, 
that's like I said, we were trying to just get the thing, get the things off the uh, off the rails. Um, so uh, yeah, th- there wasn't a whole lot of learning to come from that. What was lovely was um, I'd flown air defence the whole of my life. All I'd shot up to that point was a Sparrow uh, off a Phantom, and it didn't bloody track. So um, so I was desperate to fire a, a, a Sidewinder. And uh, and I got to shoot two in in the same in the same trip in the same run uh, like that, and they raged downrange and they all exploded. It was like a firework really? uh, uh, display, and um, and the um, uh, the the smoke hangs around a bit. You know, it, it kind of eventually will uh, dissipate, fall to the uh, fall to the floor. But uh, yeah. That is quite yeah, different was, I, from from your. I think it's I think it's your F four book where you talk about going up, uh, going to Wales to fly against the oh Jindrick God, yeah, and yeah. all the anticipation and all that yeah. kind of stuff just for a single shot. Very different, and and very tense as well because uh, you know it costs a lot of money to set set up a Jindrick and mm. clear the range and fire these uh, missiles. The missiles are expensive in themselves, mm. um, so to just like I said to just go and blat off stuff for the just for the sheer hell of it or the fun of it was was great it really was it really was great yeah I, and um like i said i, I don't want to get people give people the impression we we were just cowboys and uh and going out that these are the stories that that have the most uh the most impact of course but um we did some we we did a lot of very serious uh stuff as well when we supported the weapon school at uh at vegas that was my last debt that was that was extremely serious uh, uh, stuff, you know that uh, that we were doing with them. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of fun, but um, we were we tried to be as professional as we could uh, within within those bounds. Did you did you go to, to Nellis more than once? Did you do more than one? Day God, I, was, I was practically uh, I was practically living at Nellis so at one point. Um, I know you've been, you know, Las Vegas. That that's uh, that's a and out of this world place, but mm. I was going so often, and, it, and sometimes just popping in for a couple of days and, and such. I was going so often, my Vegas tolerance went down to about a day and a half, <laughs> and uh, and then I needed to get out. So the final time I went to Vegas was this um, fighter weapon school support, and um, normally I've been to Vegas a number of times before. Um, never stayed in the O Club at Nellis. We were always downtown. And um, because we were Marines, the U.S. Air Force put us in, uh, you know, not the not the best accommodation, but it was generally workable and, and on the strip. This final trip, absolutely no word of a lie, they put us in a Super 8 motel that was under an, an, an underpass under the I-15. It was opposite a, uh, a, a titty bar. And when we arrived to check into this Super 8 motel, there were... There were flashing lights and everything. The police were all over the place. They just had a drive-by shooting at the um, at the uh, the strip club, and we're across the road from it. and And it was like there was nothing else. It was the strip club, the Super Eight Motel, and the rest of it was building site and and freeway. And I just thought, oh my god, I think I've been here too many times. I, I need to, I need to get this debt over with and 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 go home. Uh, as quick as uh, as quick as possible. So uh, yeah, we were properly in the badlands on that one. 
Can, can I ask you to a, a personal question? And, and I, yeah, you know, pass if you if you don't want to talk about it, which is fine. Um, but um, you, you mentioned that your wife was pregnant with your second child, and you obviously had yes. a child out there. Yeah. Um, what, what was life like for your family then? Because you, you you've already said that you didn't really want to be flying on the weekends. You wanted to be on the beach. You lived you yeah. lived, you lived by the beach. I always feel for the spouses and the the families of you know of fighter pilots and fighter, fighter aviators because there's a lot of deploying there's a lot of tdy there's a lot of yeah. going somewhere yeah. there's a lot of going away on remote tours all that kind of stuff what what do you think life was like for your family i mean did they well how, how do you balance that with you know your ambition we, and your desire yeah. to fly with with yeah. your family obligations which is uh, it's what happens on an RAF squadron as well we deploy in the RAF and there's a i suppose there's a tacit uh a, agreement that when somebody marries into that they um they understand what it is that they're that they're marrying into um i'm not saying it's not without its uh without its friction but we so we arrive my predecessor is there with his wife and and three kids they looked after us really uh, uh really well so um uh his wife um introduced mine to their social circle and most people of our generation had young kids. So uh, we had uh, my eldest daughter, um, our only daughter at the time, and she was one year old when we uh, when we arrived. So it's uh, things like playgroups, uh, young wives getting together, their kids playing in the garden while they sit there um, sipping sangria or, or whatever it is. You know, there's that social circle that that, that helps. But then we moved from El Toro to Miramar, where my predecessor hadn't been. So we started again. But there was the Australian guy that we knew, and they lived close to us. So they had uh, three young kids. So instant um, best friends uh, uh, sort of thing there. And then they introduced us to a, uh, a brilliant expat community in uh, San Diego. Lots of... Uh, uh, Australian Navy people, some Royal Navy, but uh, mostly mostly Aussies, and we became part of that social uh, circle. So there was a support network uh, uh, for you. We had lots of visitors coming out from uh, from the UK because, hey, you know, free accommodation in California, you'll never get this opportunity again. And, and people didn't stay with us the whole time. They did tours around because they they wanted to sample, but we were a good base for uh, uh, for that sort of thing. So there was there was. There was great. We did have good social life. Interesting thing, we didn't have great social life with uh, with the Marines. They, they were not. They're, they're real band of brothers and sisters um, in uniform, and um, but we didn't really do much social mixing with them. You know, round to their houses. I say that some of them were were, were brilliant. Our first year there um, on one twenty one, um, Thanksgiving came up. And it's not something that we celebrate as uh, as Brits. Nothing to do with us, uh, but it's a big deal in in the states. And one of the uh, wizos that I I used to fly with said, um, "What are you doing for Thanksgiving, Tug?" And I said, "Well, probably be on the beach. You know, it's not our not our thing." And he said, "Would you do us the honour of uh, of coming and having Thanksgiving with me and my family?" And I I said, "God, we'd love to." And we went there, and it was me, uh, my wife, and uh, daughter and uh, the Brit backseater, who's a single guy, and they they had us at their Thanksgiving dinner, which was a very special uh, special thing. And um, and his wife, they don't drink tea over there, but his wife had looked up 
how to make tea. Oh, really? You know, because it, it but, you know, which for us is, God, you know, that's the simplest of things. But she'd looked it up to make Thanksgiving, something on Thanksgiving specific to us as British people. And it, 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 it almost choked me up. It was wow. such a beautiful thing that, uh, that she, the tea was shit, by the way, but. <laughs> The 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 thought that she uh, that she put into it to uh, to do that, I was really touched uh, by that. But that was few and far between with the with the Marines. So we had a, this expat community. Whenever I went on debt, it was for two weeks at a time. We we'd done that plenty of times uh, uh, before. And um, when I went on debt to Vegas the first time, uh, she flew out on Southwest uh, at the weekend with uh, uh, with Holly, my uh, our daughter, and. Um, and we spent the weekend in in Vegas because we'd not been before. So, so there was element of that. Had she not been pregnant when I went to Alaska, I'd have flown her up to Alaska mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with Holly. Probably not across to Key West because it was it was you know two two thousand miles. It was a long uh, a long way away. So um, yeah, it's not it's not easy for uh, spouses when we deploy. But it wouldn't have been easier in the RAF uh, either. I think she was uh, she hated uh, when I deployed to do the Iraq no fly zone on the Tornado F three. That kind of brought it home. You know that was proper deployment as opposed to a bit of exercise and mm. and fannying around and boozing and, and having a good time. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think that's uh, that's how it uh, how it goes. You probably should um, you should do an interview with um, a couple of wives, I suppose, from those from those sort of. Cold War ending, Cold War era where we did deploy a lot uh, just for exercise. That'd be an interesting uh, kind of angle, you yeah, know, to I, see I think what they think. Yeah, we think that you know, I'm, I'm sure they were all right because when they came back, she didn't throw the uh, frying pan at me um, uh, after I'd been away. But um, you, you don't know, you know, you're not you're not there in the two weeks that you're not there. Yeah. So um, who, who knows what uh, what used to uh, go on. I also, I mean, it's probably it's not a, it's not something that I I I can say I know for certain, but it just seems to me as well that you know from having met and spent time with you know hundreds of of, of aviators over the last twenty three years since I've been you know writing about um, military aviation or, or doing this podcast over the last three or four years. Um, you know, it seems that the, the, for the guys, it's predominantly guys, and nowadays, you know, you get, you get girls in the cockpit too, so it's different. Yeah. But 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 predominantly, the guys that I'm talking to, you know, they seem to be able to shut themselves off. They seem to be able to say, "Okay, I'm I'm now TDY. Um, I'm got to focus on what I'm doing." And I guess you have to do that when it, if you if you if you make a little mistake, you're going to die. Then it makes sense that you want to be focused on the job at hand and not be not be distracted by things at home. But but as a father myself, and having seen the challenges of having two young children with me around to help um, and then thinking about someone being put in a position where they're going to go to another country, they've got to find uh, places for, for the children to go to school, they've got to build new networks and then that network gets dis- disrupted because then they're going to move somewhere else. You know, that, that sounds to me like a, a, a not a, a small challenge. You know, it sounds like... Uh, a, a, it certainly a, was. I mean, the, 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 um, the scale of what we had to do when we first arrived in only two weeks mm. before I start um, the rack uh was uh it really came home to us on the first night i think you know we've gotten up in a nice hotel but we've got the clocks ticking straight away when you arrive we had to get a house two cars um bank all of all of your life has to be set up again from uh from scratch and it's no 
small undertaking, so it is stressful. Uh, and it was eight hours different, so our body clocks were were screwed. You yeah. know, so we were running on uh, running on empty uh, right at the start. But as soon as you get, we we lived in a very nice house in uh, Orange County when I did the uh, did the rag with a uh, nice neighbours on on one side, and uh, and we locked in, and uh, and then you you start going out at the weekends, and everywhere's the famous name in California. You've seen all this stuff uh, before. And um, I think we tried to make a point of doing stuff. Um, so when you go away on deployment, I think it was very easy for me to not forget my family, but things were put in front of me that I had to concentrate on. And I think it's very easy because we go flying. It's very easy for us to compartmentalize and concentrate on the flight. Not so easy for the people that are your family that are left behind, where it's just another day for them, but somebody's not in the house who normally is and not helping out. So when you are at home, this is why I didn't want to go on the road every weekend. Uh, and I could have done it. We could have taken the jets every weekend if we wanted to, but I wanted to live a bit of a uh, bit of life with, with my family. So in those three years, so I, I go into the squadron and people would say, what do you do this weekend? And um, I said, Oh, we went out to long beach and we stayed a night on the queen Mary. You know, it, it was like, an hour away from home, but we stayed the night on the Queen Mary ship, you know, because, and, and guys are saying, oh, I really must do that. How long have you lived in California? Oh, about 12 years. And, and they'd never been there because when you live somewhere, you don't have yeah. the urgency to go. Yeah. So we went to Hawaii twice on holiday. You know, how, how, how lucky are we? We went to Vegas. We saw the Grand Canyon. We did San Francisco. We did Yosemite Valley. Um, we did a lot on the West Coast because we thought, there's a good chance we'll never get here again, mm. you know. And then we went to Tijuana in Mexico and thought, I hope we never come here again, you know. Um, but we sampled all of these things as much as we could. And I think that helped with the when I was away, you know, we, we still knew we were we were planning on doing that when I came back, but we'd just done that before I went uh, before I went away. Mm. Um, but when I did go away, the flying is is it's all encompassing when you do military flying, I think. Uh, and certainly fast jet uh, type stuff, uh, because it has to be all encompassing. You have to give your all to it. Otherwise, it's pretty unforgiving if uh, if you don't. So a lot easier for me going away, I think. So closing thoughts then, Tug. Um, mm. you, you talk with such passion. Uh, you talked with passion about the F4. Um, I'm really hoping that we get back together again and you're going to talk about being a flying instructor and you're going to talk about going flying the F3. So we, we kind Love of, to, yeah. we've kind of yeah. straddled in a way your career by yeah. doing F4 and then, and then Hornet, but we'll come back and go back in time and then forward in time. Um, but, but so, so certainly in these two sort of chapters, let's say of our interviews, you've, you've talked with great passion about both the F4 and, and the F18 and, and you talk when we're offline and we're, you know, we're just chatting before we hit record it, it's very clear and of course you're writing uh, at the same time you've written the f4 book you've written the instructor book you're writing your hornet book at the moment um but it's very clear that these these things it's a it's a joy for you to go back back in time and to remember these experiences and to think about the emotions that they evoke but do you do um you just said you didn't know if you're going to go back do you go back for reunions do you keep in touch with the guys that you were flying with on both of those squadrons um in the states um how, how often do you get to revisit those memories i think i've uh, i think i've said we've um uh, we before we we're, we're very transitory when it comes to friendship i think in uh, in the military because 
you're together with somebody for two or three years and you are intense and and it's a strong bond that you get even with the people you don't particularly like we make a strong bond uh, with them then you move to another squadron and there's a period where you're hankering for that because that was better than what you've got right now and then this becomes uh, brilliant and so um this is this is something that um, I, I think people can't quite grasp that I've not. Um, so the the British backseater that I was on exchange with is the oh my god one of the best people I've ever met, um, and to say he was a GR one guy in the air to air environment, he was as good as any Phantom pilot, uh, Phantom navigator I've, I've ever flown with. There was just something about it. And another thing was, he was an all-round nice guy, brilliant at what he did, uh, very, very professional, and an all-round nice guy. Makes you sick, you know, that he had everything going for him. And uh, for a good couple of years, we were that, uh, we were, we were like that. And then he went back to the RAF um, before I did, and then I went back to the RAF. Well, we kind of kept in touch, and then it, and then it drifts, and it drifts, and it drifts. And we got in touch uh, a few years ago because um, I think he was trying to he wanted to join the company I work for, and we got in touch and we had a bit of a chat and and that's that and and that's a few years ago. I could meet him tomorrow in a pub and we'd pick up where we uh, where we left off. And some people can't quite uh, imagine that that uh, that that can happen. So I I try to go to the Phantom reunion every year. Uh, it's today, but I can't make it today because of uh, other commitments. But I'll try and do that uh, every year. And I've just started going to the 92 Squadron reunion, which is my first Phantom Squadron. And these are these things are enough to tick us over, to bring everything back to the surface, to give us a feeling of how much we enjoyed that and how good we were. Um, and as much as I joke about all the things that I was uh, I'd screwed up on, look, the bottom line is we were good at what uh, at what we did. I think otherwise we wouldn't have been doing. Uh, what we did, um, and so that's enough to tick it over. And then I'll I'll meet up with somebody I've not seen for years, and, and we'll have a two hours chat over a beer. With the Marines, it's a lot more difficult now. I have been back to California uh, two or three times since uh, since I um, uh, since I came home, and and just recently I've uh, I, I've been over, um, and I've kept in touch. I'm in touch with uh, a couple of those guys on LinkedIn. And it's always we must get together uh, sometime. Let us know when you're over, and either I do let them know or I forget because it, it's not just it's just not there in my life anymore. But if I did manage to meet any of these guys, then we'd pick up where we uh, where we left off. And what I do is when I when I write a book, if I've mentioned somebody in the book, um, you know, and shared experiences with them, I always send them a uh, send them a copy and I sign it up for them. And um, and if we've flown in the aeroplane together, I draw a little uh, caricature picture of an aeroplane. I can't draw, but I draw this little cartoon thing because that they've flown the aeroplane with me, and that's that's a little bond that we do. So what I'll do is when the Hornet book comes out, I will go onto LinkedIn, Facebook, all of those things, and I'll track down as many of those guys as I can just to say, look, I've written about this, you're in it, and I'd like to send you a copy just as a little tribute to, uh, to to you, because you made that period of my life what it was. The, the aeroplanes are great; they're absolutely great. I treat them like living uh, living beings, and they gave me those experiences. 
but those experiences wouldn't have been half what they were without those people that I shared those experiences with. And that's what I try and do. So I will get in touch with them. And do you know what? Maybe uh, maybe once I'll I'll be able to organize that, look, I'm going to California. Uh, I'm going to be in San Diego for a night or three. Do you want to, uh, if you're around, do you want to do that? And um, And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it doesn't mean to say we're not friends with these people anymore. They're, they're life experience people uh, uh, for me. And it'd be lovely to pick up with them. And uh, I'm sure when I advertise the new book on LinkedIn, um, those that I'm linked in with will, will find me out, you know, mm. uh, maybe just, just to see if they're in it, uh, I suppose. That's the usual uh, That's the usual vain thing that we do as mm. air crew. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's where we're at with that. Well, when when it's uh, well, I'm hoping yeah, you said. I think I don't know if it was when we were recording or not, but you said it's more than a year out. So I'm hoping we're going to get back together yeah. again and talk about your instruct your time as an instructor at Bordy and and then yeah, I'd love through. to. Yeah, and certainly yeah. I need to follow up with the question: How did you almost kill yourself in the hawk? I didn't. I deliberately didn't yeah. ask because I want that to be in the next uh, in our next uh, interview. But it sounds like that was a transformative period for you as a fighter pilot, as a, as a person. So keen, keen it's to explore that. Most shameful thing I've ever done in an aeroplane. So uh, really? yeah, it's, it's worth talking about. Okay. Yeah. Tug, it's just tremendous listening to you, and I know that the audience love. I mean, someone, someone just literally two days ago said we want more. They, they didn't know that we were doing this. They said we we need more tug. We need more banter. The, the Brits, you know, the Brit banter is the best banter. Get tug on. Um, well, we've delivered. Uh, well, you've delivered. Uh, the banter today has been tremendous, and it's just a joy listening to you talk about your experiences and you, the way that you can, you know, sort of flip between some of the technical and and then talk about the human interest side and deliver it with. Uh, um, you know, humor. Uh, and uh, so, so br- brilliant listening. Thank you so much for coming on again yeah, and giving super. us more of your time. Yeah. No, I, I, as you can tell, I, I like, um, I like telling stories. So I tell stories for a living. That's, uh, that's basically the job that, uh, that I do when I teach, um, human factors to young aviators. We do it through storytelling. But every time you tell a story, it's, uh, it, it brings everything back to the surface for you. And that's how I, that's how I'm, I guess that's where I sometimes get a little bit of satisfaction out of my life in that uh, I can't fly anymore because I'm um, medically unable to do that. And so reliving it uh, almost almost puts a salve on that uh, on that wound for me. Um, it, yeah, all the funny stories of where we uh, where we screw up, but just to reiterate, you know we, we try our best with this stuff. We don't always get uh, get it right every time, but when you do get it right, it is such a uh, it's such an uplifting uh, experience that you've 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 gone into this thing not knowing how it's going to work out, and you come back and you land and you think, dear God, you know I did something spectacular there, but if you looked at it from the outside, it looks like it was a bog standard trip. You know, and those are the those are the the ones where we go up, and it and it runs to plan, and 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 we we react to the stuff that doesn't run to plan, and nothing untoward happens. That happens most of the time, but we don't give that any credit. Um, it's always the spectacular and the outrageous that uh, that gives us the uh, that gives us the stories. But but by telling this stuff, it brings all of that to the surface as uh, as well. And I've always said I think I find this very therapeutic uh, uh, telling this story. So you're doing me a favour as well. 
I think uh, I was, I, and I hadn't said it to you, but I, I was thinking that actually at some point understanding what human factors is and, and maybe taking this conversation in more of an academic direction would be kind of interesting for the audience, for me personally, for sure. I mean, I, all of this stuff is, is stuff that I'm interested in, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. It just happens to be the case that lots of other people are interested in it too. But but that would be an interesting conversation to have too. I'd, I'd be interested to understand how the human factors, what, what human factors is, how it works and what it is that you're teaching too. So, yeah, I mean, we touch on it with the, with the whole attitude um, uh, type stuff with uh, 1v1 combat but um, yeah I'd love to do that as well as long as I slip in the odd story of where I got shit faced and went flying hung over you know it'll, uh, it'll still get a uh, get a few views I know it's mandatory okay yeah Tug thanks so much look forward to speaking again soon lovely I'll take care cheers thanks for tuning in to 10% True I hope you enjoyed this episode Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.